0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin,
1: and this is Robbie Martin. Coming at you live from Oklahoma. <laughs> we should, Oakland, we should do
0: just broadcaster voices now. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. <laughs> well, without
1: without naming any specific names, um, I have noticed that def- there's definitely some podcasts out there that have morning zoo AM radio energy <laughs> that are like good podcasts with good content, but like I've been having a hard time being able to listen to them because of like the vocal cadence and, like the energy it does feel like it's sort of like you're it's that vibe of driving to work at like seven in the morning and like oh, you God. just have your coffee and you need to be like yeah hyped yeah, up yeah with like silliness
0: yep, yep. just anyway. got your bolt <laughs> fucking energy drink is it bad drops too or is it like um it's like, less you know, like about the drops and more
1: about like do you remember when mom and dad used to listen to that show don and mike oh yeah it was it's like that it's basically like any it's like could be anywhere from like really vulgar to like not to like totally clean but like similar to like whatever the genre Howard Stern was yeah like that's the genre of radio it is
0: right (laughs) well speaking of radio genres I mean do you want to just right off the bat do a quick eulogy for Rush Limbaugh
1: yeah um rust and piss (laughs) (laughs) rust and piss lush Limbaugh (laughs) Um, Who stood in front of a swastika chair while he received the Medal of Freedom after recovering from cochlear surgery, after overdosing on Oxycontin, after being arrested for smuggling illegal Viagra over the border from his flight to Costa Rica after he went on a Costa Rica, probably underage prostitution binge uh, that he went on there. So you're going to miss you, man. You were a really good guy. I'm really going to miss you. <laughs> he
0: was just a really good guy. I'm really, really going to miss him. Um, yeah, I mean, look, you could say a lot of things about Rush Limbaugh, but you cannot say that he did not give it his all, right? When he was on fucking how many oxys a day? Like, if anyone's ever taken like a whole Oxycontin, it's like completely debilitating. Like, I cannot fathom doing that shit and, like, doing, like, a three-hour broadcast every day. It's pretty surreal that he was doing that. So props to Rush. Uh, But in all seriousness, I mean, it is really important just to give a quick note on how influential Rush Limbaugh really was and how much he paved the way for, like, this you know, liberal media trope and also just the ecosphere of, like, right-wing populism. And this was, like, pre-internet, so it's hard to even summarize this for people who are, like, Zoomers. I mean, he started in the late 80s. Like, that's... Uh, yeah. Think of how much influence someone...
1: Who was his competitor? Who was even close to his level of being a powerhouse like that throughout the entire 1990s? No, literally nobody. That's, like, how much influence he had. Imagine that. I mean... He was like a big fish in a small pond because there was no there, there was nobody else really in the pond. I mean, it's kind of in-
0: insane to think about how much power he wielded um, back then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he emerged from this ecosystem of like Christian evangelism, but he definitely was the leading voice in this right wing media sphere. And he had a three hour broadcast every single day, and it essentially infiltrated the airwaves across the country and dominated. The talk radio space um he was a huge opposing force of the clinton administration to the point where like bill clinton like even referenced him like when the oklahoma city bombing happened and like just a bunch of stuff i mean he was he was like a focal point of ire from the democratic party and from the clintons because of how influential he was um yeah he co- he i don't think he coined the term feminazi but he definitely popularized it talking about like feminine the feminist. No, he movement. did i'm, I'm pretty sure he to... did
1: coin the term
0: oh my god that's disgusting yeah, yeah i mean well
1: i think mm-hmm. that's the key takeaway here is the enormous amount of influence he had how we it's hard to f- imagine that rush limbaugh was like leagues leagues above people like sean hannity and bill o'reilly but they i mean yeah. even when they were on fox news yeah they had influence but they were never like intellectually anywhere close to Rush Limbaugh's level, like I will give him credit in the sense that he knew exactly what he was doing. He was talking, trying to basically influence the sort of, you know, working class conservative type mind, exactly. but also like the, you know, affluent conservative mind, Mm -hmm. but he would be doing it in ways that he would sort of be talking down to people. Like he would be putting himself at a lower level than he really was at Like, he was way smarter, I mean, than anybody I can think of from today, like Glenn Beck, Tucker. I mean, you think of Tucker as maybe being more on the intellectual end of these kind of characters. But he was even, I mean, he really soared above Tucker in terms of, like, his rhetorical ability. Um, His talking points were very well done. I mean, very... Influential, designed for viral spread. They would spread across mm-hmm. the rest of the right wing media sphere. All these guys came after Rush Limbaugh. The only one I can maybe think of who had a similar, unique influence, uh, you know, and is unique in that character is maybe like Michael Savage or like Ann Coulter, mm-hmm. maybe from that same time period. But Rush Limbaugh was still way bigger than they ever got.
0: Right. And plus, Rush Limbaugh had this lasting permeance and like, wide-reaching ability to I mean think about this this was in the 90s right that he was you know at the top of his game early decades later like we're literally we're literally talking about 30 years later and we are still talking about the same issues that he essentially popularized and not only like stupid identity politics stuff um 100 and not only like the right-wing populism stuff that Trump played to and of course Trump Honored him, you know, and and said like, thank you for your service and everything that you've done for me. It pretty much like paved the way for the proto Trump rhetoric. But not only that, but I think most damaging was the liberal media terminology. I mean, he went out there and generalized this discussion about mainstream media culture, just like we hear today, the liberal media, hugely influential, deflecting from obviously the conservative corporate control of the media, of the mainstream media. Right? So like yeah. now we're still battling this idea today where people just immediately have this knee-jerk reaction to think that the media is liberal. And that all stems from Rush Limbaugh.
1: Here's what's so fascinating about what you just said. Clear Channel, which was like consolidating the airwaves that Bill Clinton's Telecommunication Act basically created this in, simultaneously from lifting the, the Fairness Doctrine, which prevented people from Rush Limbaugh like being on the airwaves. That's a really mm-hmm. complicated subject to go into. But the point I'm trying to make is that what you just said is super bizarre to think about the symbiotic relationship between Rush Limbaugh playing the victim and making all these conservatives be able to portray this victim mentality that they were up against this massive monolith of the liberal media while simultaneously clear channel, which broadcasts his three hour show every day, like Mm -hmm. the most prolific political show on AM radio was literally being consolidated to like every radio station in the country during the Bush era. Like they bought up, They went from like, I think they went from like 10 times the amount of airwaves reach through clear channel during the Bush air than they had before. So it's just hilarious to think that they managed to spin that narrative while the AM radio itself was like 100% dominated by Rush Limbaugh. Well, there was
0: no liberal or left media stations. I mean, what the conservatives talk about, what the conservatives talk about is just like liberal liberal culture. Like, they, they're they upset at the mainstreaming of, like, gay culture and, like, feminism and stuff like that. So then, of course, you just take the entire media as a whole and you just say, like, it's, it's all liberal because they've adopted um, yeah. these, you know, these traits or these characteristics. It's just the most absurd thing ever. It's like, obviously, if you look at the systemic... Um, function of like what does corporate media, who does corporate media serve and who owns it? It's like, I mean, it's just so anti intellectual and stupid on its face. But I mean, think about it. We're still talking about this today. I don't know. I mean, when was he off the air? I mean, he was always doing no, a he, three hour show, but like when, when did he like, I don't know. Like I think when his was influence he, probably waned. When did he during pass the, the torch era. off? Yeah. I mean, really? That long? Yeah. Yeah. Because I was going to say, Air America. Was like the only time that I can ever remember in my entire life, and I'm 36, that there was an actual left, and not even really left, you know, like a li- like left liberal, libs, social democrat channel, and that was only funded and lasted as long as it did because of Mike Papantonio, <laughs> who's like a multi-millionaire who actually just invested all of his own cash to keep that going, which really shows you like this is not a fruitful endeavor for capitalists to have like left leaning content on the airwaves. No, just actually
1: isn't. populist left right. content that's truly anti-establishment, even if it's really watered down in parts like Air America right, was, exactly. is still not a profitable venture. Having controlled opposition, right. you know, people like Rush Limbaugh railing against the coastal elites mm-hmm. when he's linked to the exact same system and benefits it is, is actually beneficial it serves a similar purpose to tucker now railing against the he, he even says ruling class and oligarchs on his show well it's hard for people to understand how that's not real populism unless they understand what rush limbaugh was doing where right. he was trying to make it seem like these coastal elites were the problem with the liberals who are rich that are the problem it's kind of like a coded thing, but like Tucker doesn't even have to use the code. It's like his listeners understand that evolution of rhetoric. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Of course, of course. So, and Rush Limbaugh popularized not just the liberal media. Popularized terms like the coastal elites. He popularized terms like Bush derangement syndrome. Yeah, Charles Krauthammer mm. is the one who actually coined that. But how do you think people heard it? They don't. Not everybody's listening to Charles Krauthammer. Rush Limbaugh used to say it all the time. Rush Limbaugh also used to say all the time that people who were against the Iraq war were the blame America first crowd. Now, what people don't remember is that all this stuff we're talking about, all this anti-liberal media rhetoric that Rush Limbaugh put out there was directly linked together at the hip with hardcore textbook neoconservative propaganda. Textbook.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, Mm -hmm. the most hardcore stuff you'd ever see. Anything that was remotely defending uh The invasion of Iraq or like defending against it. The
0: Gulf War. Yeah. Rush Limbaugh would say
1: it was, you know, a Saddam apologist. He actually used to have like parody songs about bombing Iraq, like play on his show. That's Mm -hmm. actually one thing, just maybe to give Rush Limbaugh a little bit of credit in terms of the creativity department. They weren't funny songs, but he used to actually have like extremely well produced, like parody songs. They would play on his show, like he used to do one about Obama called "Puff the Magic Negro," that was like a perfect Yikes. rendition of "Puff the Magic Dragon." Like it sounded like identical. To, I remember listening on the radio, thinking like, "Yikes, who the fuck makes these?" And he used to have one called "Bomb Iraq" set to Barbara Ann. Now apparently, that's where John McCain got it from.
0: Right. I was just gonna say, hmm, yep, definitely influenced John McCain. So yeah, it's
1: like all these motherfucking neocons were like on the Rush Limbaugh drip. You know, it's like it's just so. You know this whole right populist thing now is just so phony. When you think about where all this stuff really originates from,
0: absolutely, absolutely, it's important. It's it's important to remember where it came from. Yeah, and that's why Rush Limbaugh was such a dangerous figure. That's why it was so offensive for him to get like the Medal of Honor, whatever the Medal of Freedom from Trump. Very, very uh, shocking, right? But also not shocking at all. But like. You know, It was just insane because he was like so past his prime, you know, like totally drug addled um, all of the controversy. And then he still is like awarded this like top tier medal from Trump during the State of the Union. It was just like very bizarre.
1: It was very bizarre. And like I said before, I mean, whose idea was it to tell Trump to yeah. do that at the State of the Union? It's like the most divisive,
0: crazy, unnecessary thing to do ever. Like it's like, what the fuck was the point of that? So Robbie... You didn't watch the Oprah interview with Meghan Merkel and Prince Harry? No, but I mean I just kept seeing coverage of it
1: constantly. The I mean the only thing that seemed like funny out of the whole thing was that was everyone's like oh Prince Harry is such a saint, he's so beautiful. It's like dude, he I mean he was Join like a the piece of army, shit. right? Yeah, he like joined the army voluntarily like when he was old enough to know better. There's a lot of things that, you know, about those people that are obviously disgusting, but like it was simultaneously true that a lot of the negative press that she gets is probably based a little bit in racism or a lot in some I mean, some of it probably is. I mean, just like I can acknowledge that Obama was horrible, but a lot of the criticism probably directed at him had a racist kernel to it. But Piers Morgan actually like walked off the air off his own show because he like got in too many arguments with uh, people about this because he would just incessantly going after them. And I guess he just got he got in too many arguments, and he it's like one of the only times I've seen somebody walk off their own show, which was I thought it was pretty funny. And apparently he's not back on the show anymore. So that's really all I think about it. What was your? I mean, it's take?
0: I mean i I didn't watch it because first of all, I wanted to, but like CBS made you download their app and all this shit. It's just like I'm not gonna do this shit to watch this fucking interview. Like I don't care enough, you know. And I feel like I got the. I got the sound bites that I needed from just Twitter highlights for 48 hours of what the interview was. And it's like, I'm not shocked that the royal family is racist. I'm not shocked that they hate her because she's half black. Um, They probably detest her because she's also just like an American actress or whatever. Because I remember that story of this woman, one of the royals, I forget who, I think it was like a princess who attended this Christmas banquet wearing like like a slave brooch. Like racist African man. That's odd. Like an exotic. It was insane. And that was just like a couple of years ago or something. It's just like these people are relics. They're ancient. The entire royal family is just an incredibly outdated institution. It's totally absurd. But as absurd as it seems, I mean, we pretty much treat celebrities, you know, we worship celebrities the same way in America. So it's just like, it's all disgusting and the British people have their own problems with worshiping the royal family. And, you know, I was over there when, like, I think when Kate Middleton, like, had her kid or, like, first got married or whatever. And it was just, like... It was grotesque. I mean, you walk through these shops in London and there's just like plates and statues and like every storefront just had all of this paraphernalia and like merch. It's almost like them, sad. You know?
1: It's sad. It mean, is. It's
0: just weird.
1: Yeah, it is weird. I mean, we we thought it was super weird when like people in Berkeley were making like hip shirts of Obama. I mean, it's probably, it's just so ingrained over there to idolize, yeah. you know, the royal family. It's probably just totally normalized.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, Oh, you mentioned, I mean, you brought this up by mentioning Oprah. I thought mm-hmm. um, uh, Ryan, who's been a previous guest on our podcast, posted a great clip. I don't know if he found it, but it was of uh, Oprah doing like a th- uh, an hour-long segment that was like hardcore neoconservative propaganda, like from 2003, pushing for the Iraq war. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, I don't even, I mean, I'm, it's not a huge surprise to me, but it's just like even she was doing that. She brings on a PNAC person on her show, um, what's his name, Zalmay uh, Zalmay Khaliazad, who was a PNAC signatory, um, to to just push the Iraq war. And it's just like, well, there it is. Like, everybody was fucking part of this shit. Talk about a conspiracy. I mean, how did that get coordinated to that degree? Like, every single fucking show is just, like, pushing the Iraq war.
0: Yeah, it's so disgusting to... Rewrite history now and pretend that there was like this groundswell in the establishment, like the liberal establishment and stuff against it. It's like, no, I remember like Michael Moore getting booed. He got straight up. Like, how vile is that? You know, the Iraq war, like, we're not talking about Afghanistan, which would be insane as it is.
1: I think it's a really good example. Uh, It parallels with what's happening now during trump and during biden how we see these sort of hollywood elites acting about the kids in cages where like sarah silverman's like important thread everyone like found all these old sarah silverman tweets where she's just like screaming about the kids in cages under trump and then as soon as biden gets in and then talking about the child detention centers she's just like important thread and it's a like a 50-part thread like making all these like equivocations of how it's not a, a kids in cages even though it literally still is
0: And meanwhile, (laughs) oh, Robbie, it's just overflow detention camps for migrant children now. But meanwhile, did you just see that statistic? Ryan also told me this. I just saw him the other night. Um, He said that the number of migrant children has tripled in the last two weeks. This is a very disturbing statistic that just came out. Breaking news, everyone. Yeah. That's, uh, That's pretty fucked up. Yeah, so it's like, wait, what? Is, what exactly is going on here? Well, and also, the deportations have already like surpassed Obama, Trump's rate. Sorry, at this time, in his presidency.
1: Well, I'm not going to make any excuses for Biden, whatsoever. But in my head, I'm thinking that might have something to do with the fact that maybe there's a lot more people coming here, thinking that they have a better chance to get across the border, or, you know, not with Trump not in office. But maybe important
0: thread. Important thread. Maybe this has to do with people who want to come because they feel like they're going to have a better chance of getting in. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have not seen the new Adam Curtis movie. I thought it was a, like a six-part miniseries.
1: Well, it's a six-part movie. I mean, it is a miniseries, but it's all part of the same narrative, essentially.
0: What is it? Just give me the rundown. Adam Curtis's new film
1: series, miniseries, whatever you want to call it, is called "Can't Get You Out of My Head." It is six parts, six hours long, and it seems mm-hmm. like it is simultaneously anti-communist, anti-liberal activist, anti-radical, and one of the only things in the narrative that I resonated with so far was this idea. Wait, that, you
0: did you watch the entire thing? No, or is I just not watched three parts of it. Okay.
1: No, the whole thing's out. It's been out for about okay. two weeks. Um, okay. I did find a really easy way to watch it with a VPN. Uh, you just have to lie and register on the BBC's website and say you own a, a television license and all this shit. Mm-hmm. It'll still work. You can use an American or any email address. Um, you just have to do it through a VPN and s- pretend mm-hmm. you're coming from the UK. Um, overall, I thought it was a weaker film in terms of just filmmaking compared to his previous two hypernormalization and bitter Lake, I thought were stylistically very impressive. Like I, just as an art piece, I thought they were like brilliantly done. Um, but this movie has multiple flaws where from a filmmaking perspective, it's very, uh, it feels like retreaded ground from like power of nightmares. Not the footage mm-hmm. isn't even as good. Feels like he's using a lot of similar random stock footage, like black and white stock footage of stuff, um, and it just doesn't cohere as much to me as like an, a, a, a like a film that feels like a piece of art. And also the politics in it also just sort of feel like he's a jaded older guy now who's who thinks leftism is, you know, worthy of this amount of criticism. Compared to some of his earlier works, which are more structural critiques, but it's like now it seems like he's more interested in critiquing, like you know, leftists. It's it's kind of bizarre. That's
0: kind of crazy. It is actually. I mean, he spends a lot of time talking about. What about it is the anti-communism thing?
1: Yeah, he spends a lot of time talking about the revolution in China, Mm -hmm. and I don't really know very much about it. But he spends a lot of time talking about it critically. Making it mm-hmm. seem like everybody were just robots, you know, like almost like acting just like all like lemmings. And he just constantly showing footage of people in crowds all chanting and things like that. Mm-hmm. He There's a section about Tupac and how Tupac was like the relatives of actual Black Panthers or like, you know, the descendant of of one. And that he sort of like was this fake activist like trapped inside of a... you know a a sort of a closed system and i can i I can get on board that narrative because like yeah like the whole hip-hop is a sort of a radical anti-establishment thing i've never i mean at least mainstream hip-hop you know like i've never seen like tupac or even like nwa really seriously going against the establishment so that is i mean that i didn't take really any issue with that um but then he's just sort of criticizing like black panthers in general but at the same time, like saying that FBI COINTELPRO was like very like serious against them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he also bashes Jim Garrison in it, but like provides no evidence or like reasons why he's going after Jim Garrison so hard and just making it seem like the JFK assassination conspiracies are a method of control that people use on people. It's kind of all over the place. Sounds really dumb, actually. What I'm saying, the way I'm hearing it now, it almost sounds like better than it is. (laughs) Like I'm making it, actually trying to make, I'm trying to like hype it up a little bit. It's not even as good as I'm describing, to be honest.
0: (laughs) It sounds really boring. I wonder why he chose to make it a six-part series and if that has anything to do with why it's like all over the place because he was trying to pack in so much into six hours that just became an incoherent thread. Yeah, it feels like
1: it's like an essay that he just wanted like a cultural essay. Mm -hmm. And it seems more inspired by these sort of like um, people like Nick Land. There's these sort of UK modern philosopher guys that have a sort of a cynical, jaded perspective on like modern leftism. It's sort of like a more intellectual, wider cultural critique of like anti-wokeism, like anti leftism that we see a lot today in different forms
0: odd timing to pile on the china stuff doesn't of course
1: it? i mean just like it was odd timing for him to make it seem like the problem in afghanistan afghanistan and out Al, with al-qaeda you know doing terror attacks around the world was because of saudi arabia and it didn't like go after israel or the united states at all like i just thought that was very well, odd wouldn't... like
0: He wouldn't have a BBC contract if he did that.
1: Yeah, the amount of talk about how the Taliban became to be what it was, it's like, well, the U.S. was instrumental in this. Like, that's actually a really important part of this narrative that you would have covered back in Power of Nightmares had it been longer. Like, what? I mean, Michael Moore covers that
0: in Fahrenheit Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, Um, it feels
1: like Adam Curtis is, like, a much more conservative, like, if you look on the spectrum, Michael Moore is still to the left of him, like Michael Moore right now. Of course. You know?
0: Of course. Um, Well, it seems like he's lost his magic, and and he has for a while, and maybe that's because we're so inundated with that kind of stylistic version of filmmaking that the spark is completely gone, but I think it's the politics straight up. I'd forgive him for the style of it if it was more Mm -hmm. um, politically up my alley. of course. Failures on both fronts. One person that has not lost his spark at all and in fact has regained quite a bit of a spark is Alex Jones. <laughs> uh, haven't heard from him in a minute because big tech decided to cancel him just like they cancel all conservatives. But Alex Jones is still making waves uh, across different people's YouTube channels. You just sent me an interview today that was just totally off the fucking wall talking about uh, screwing dudes at Bohemian Grove. It was just like very... Very over the top. The gay chicken humor
1: got really extreme at one point with the co-host. I don't know how much of it you watched. Uh, just for context, I sent Abby a clip of the, It's an, I guess his name is Andrew Schultz. He's a guy that seems to be trying to ride off Joe Rogan's coattails, getting a lot of clicks, views on YouTube. Some of his videos get over a million views in just a week. Um, so he's one, he's sort of like one of those influencer comedian guys who's just kind of riding that YouTube wave. And so he brings on Alex Jones because Alex Jones brings in the numbers, of course, you know. And I guess he was talking to Rogan beforehand, trying to get um, advice on what to ask him. Um, and it seems like a lot of these people just do that these days. They've tried to find Rogan's most number-generating guests and have them on. Alex Jones is a is a hit guest. Everyone wants to watch him when he goes on Rogan. It's become like a thing now, you know, that he just acts ridiculous. Um, even though his last appearance on there was pretty boring and low-key um it was pretty milquetoast he didn't it just he was still in that trump gear so everything he said was just generic boilerplate trump shit it was totally like generic but this time i guess he felt really comfortable to again talk about his sexual conquests which he started to talk about pretty pretty much right off the bat he's previously said he's slept with over one thousand women which is getting nearer and nearer to the wilt chamberlain Number, which was something like five thousand women or something like that. So Alex Jones is seeming. I I predict in several years that number will grow to maybe like two thousand, hmm. three thousand. He'll start saying. Also, the age he lost his virginity has lowered. The last time I heard him say, I think it was fourteen or thirteen, and now it's twelve. So on this interview, <laughs> he says that he was twelve years old um, when he used to go to uh, basketball courts in Austin. Uh, to find uh, black girls his age to get badass, the most badass blowjobs.
2: Twelve or thirteen. <laughs> yeah. How good we're are you basketball? at basketball? Yeah. I wasn't too good at basketball. I had like <laughs> blonde hair then. They're like, "That's a fad." Then my friends like, "No, no, he plays football with us." Right? This guy's like sixteen. No, he's like twelve. No, I'm just saying it's that cool. That's actually true. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> now, where else could you go when you're twelve and get a badass blowjob? Yeah. yeah. That could yeah. be me. Nobody knows.
1: <laughs> so that's what that's what kind of ranty was going on. I mean, he talks about sucking Danny Glover's dick. He was a handsome guy. Well, I'm not gay, oh. but I have sex with well, Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> Mel Gibson. Too. And, you know what's
2: funny? <laughs> that's what I wanted. Mel Gibson <laughs> no, and Clint no, 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 Eastwood. They're probably telling me it's Danny his, Glover to find Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> actually, Danny Glover fucked me that night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. So, so let's stop. Let's get serious. Now. Yeah, let's get serious. <laughs> no, come on. Actually, man, I was right by Clint Eastwood. That's a joke. YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, most of Bohemian Grove yeah. is a party play started by Mel Gibson. How dark is Danny Glover's dick? <laughs> like this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Danny, it's so big. Because <laughs> yeah.
1: you want to talk about um Bohemian Grove and what he said about that, which is mm-hmm. which is kind of shocking, actually. Like, because he's never I mean, I have never heard him say this before.
0: Yeah, so for people who don't know. Alex Jones has a, a whole movie about Bohemian Grove <laughs> where he has inside footage from Bohemian Grove. I, the my only brother person. and I have both, you live very close to Bohemian Grove. You live in Oakland. You've tried to, you know, circulate around the area that Bohemian Grove is hosted in every year. I actually covered Bohemian Grove it was one of the first things I did when I went to RT. Um, and, it was like a pretty pretty crazy thing, right, that Alex Jones quote unquote snuck in, got crazy footage of the cremation of care where they do this ceremony where they um allegedly sacrifice a child to like burn their cares away, right? This effigy of a child to burn away their cares, all the evil elites that are convening annually thousands of people who convene at Bohemian Grove every year. The entire like satanic panic thing that Alex Jones and people like Mark Dice have put a spin on it, which actually did allege that there was like sacrificial rituals going on. And like it takes away from the realness of what Bohemian Grove is. It's like a s- secretive ultra elite boys club where people party and like talk shop and actually discuss policy and plan policy.
1: Or the and Manhattan that's what's so Project. dangerous about it. I mean, absolutely. Like there were actual pivotal world events that were done yes. by the U.S. government, planned at Bohemian Grove, and this is not just a rumor. It's not just a footnote. There is an actual building at Bohemian Grove. Mm-hmm that looks like an ewok hut i shit you not it actually i will not even be surprised if george lucas like francis ward coppola like went to the grove when they were in their 20s and saw this these buildings and were like we need to make the ewok city look like these i swear to god look at the fucking pictures of the where mm-hmm. the manhattan project was planned at bohemian grove it is in a looks like an ewok hut like treehouse. it's fucking weird they have a plaque for it that says this is where the Manhattan Project was planned,
0: <laughs> at the That's Grove. insane. Yeah, it is fucking insane. insane, dude. So for so for this whole time, we were always like, you know, Alex Jones got a, got a ton of cred and like legitimacy, but also, you know, has really tainted the entire discussion around Bohemian Grove, just like he has around so many other things because he's made it so insane when it really is a serious issue, but it's just been ignored because of his association with it. But anyway... Turns out, according to him in this interview, that he was let in by people from the inside. He went with a BBC journalist who actually was told passcodes.
1: John Ronson. And
0: so all of it was allowed to happen and, in fact, purposefully picked Alex Jones to be the conduit to, like, get this information out there. Um, So do you think that this was an intentional misleading the public to try to dilute the issue or make it very silly with a satanic panic kind of um, overlay to whatever was actually going on there?
1: There There's so many layers to it, but I'll just say the least crazy things that I think about it. So starting with, I mean, he says, Alex Jones literally says, (laughs) <laughs> literally says. I was already big
2: on the internet. I already was successful on over 100 radio stations by, by 2000. But I was like underground. And these dudes like decided to let me sneak in, do the whole nine yards. And like once the Secret Service would talk to me, they'd get on their radio and go, okay, you can go. They, they caught me. They, they were, knew. They were told. So here's the mystery. Why did they let me they in? They were grooming you. They wanted you to be a yep. part of their thing. Yep. Maybe. Uh-oh. Oh, what is it? Hit maybe, it. Maybe you are a part of their thing. Oh! No, no, no. Oh the term what is the term uh-huh. uh disinformation a- a- specialist. specialist yes yeah. maybe they brought you in but, he but maybe i don't know they that. flipped you but maybe i don't know maybe you don't you've been brainwashed all of a sudden I, I do you worry that they're trying to play you sometimes yeah yes and more or less is that fair absolutely say? he says yeah.
1: that at about 20 minutes 10 seconds into this interview on this andrew schultz uh, podcast on youtube now they ask him why and he says
2: and I would take credit for doing this all myself. I'm being honest because this is all people's own shared experience. I literally got set up probably by Bohemian Grove to go do this. So the question is why did they? That's me? my question. Why? Why do you think? Um, well, they death threatened me and messed with me really hard after it, too. There's like different factions. I think somebody inside
1: the cult was pissed. And then he goes off on this random tangent about claiming that the footage kept getting erased when he kept trying to send it through the mail. And he said that story before but he's never said that he had secret service passcodes. He's never said that he was set up by an insider, which he doesn't go into detail about. He claims there was an insider in the Grove that like he was in contact with. He alludes to that while he's talking about this as well. Mm-hmm. And then he admits that um, for, a, for parts of his career, he believes he was being used as a disinfo operative uh, and being used as an asset. By like people inside mm-hmm. the government as a disinto operative, basically. So it's very interesting how he's sort of acknowledging these things because these are things that a lot of his more savvier critics have brought up over time. Yeah. So for him to sort of air it out as if he acknowledges them is interesting because I almost wonder if he's smart enough to know that on some level it's going to come up eventually. But maybe he's just unfiltered and he's just letting this stuff fly out of his mouth. I mean, b- but it's, it is fascinating to think that there's the Bohemian Grove. Probably there were probably people inside. I'm just guessing, speculating based on what he said, that there are probably people in there who thought, wouldn't it be hilarious if we got this guy from Texas who has this public access show and putting all these conspiracy videos online, to let him sneak in with a camera and take footage and like and like blow it up online. Because you know he's going to talk about it in crazy ways that are going to be way hyperbolic. He's not actually mm-hmm. going to really leak anything damaging. And if mm-hmm. he's, st- you know, we'll just make sure he leaves the park or the campgrounds after he takes the footage. What was the last major satanic panic conspiracy narrative before QAnon and Pizzagate? What was it? It was Bohemian Grove. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who popularized that? That Alex was like Jones the primary one.
0: Yeah, right. Yep. And That's Mark it. Dice, I remember when I was there covering it, um, Mark Dice was there just like screaming into a megaphone. I'm reminded of David Seaman in front of the White House being like, John Podesta rapes kids. Yeah. <laughs> like that did. that was like that was like the fuel. Um Yeah. It, it was a bad scene. You know, it was a real bad scene.
1: Yeah. And Harry Shearer, um, who was in Spinal Tap, who, you know, Famous mm-hmm. Simpsons voice actor, he went to the Grove. He's talked about it before. He made a film, a parody of it, called Teddy Bear's Picnic, that depicts a guy sneaking into the Grove and taking footage mm-hmm. and leaving. That looks similar to Alex Jones. So this was movie came out in like the late '90s. So it's like these yep. people knew. I mean, to make a movie, Harry Shearer, they probably they, they even the Grove was probably like, yeah, this movie's hilarious. Like they probably thought it was funny to even make a movie about them at all like well yeah and they and they movie. like i mean
0: they like trolling people about it too like for example some guy bought um a piece of artwork from me and he um does camera work here in LA and he filmed inside of Kissinger and Associates and actually Henry Kissinger's office in Kissinger and Associates and Henry Kissinger had a poster of the cremation of care up in his office Wow. And it's that's, like if that's not if that's not like a giant troll then yeah. you know well, also what's funny is I, I, you know, we didn't even
1: mention the Freemasonic History of the United States series that we're now up to episode six on on Media Roots, but on the next episode is when the Grove really gets started. And what's funny is in terms of being a giant troll, that's not a stone owl carved out of stone. That's not a, a sculpture made by somebody that's not built out of cement. That is a fake, hollow stone owl made to look like it's all worn in and aged. It's like the Matterhorn in Disneyland. <laughs> There's pictures of it, of them opening the back of it, and it's where they have all the costumes and the props. It's a little sta- backstage, the stone owl.
0: Very silly. Yeah. Very silly
1: i i mean i think the only other layer to it that i guess i'm a little hesitant to say because it sounds a little bit nutty is i think that simultaneously you look at this event and in some ways whoever in the grove wanted alex jones to do this essentially made his career like they you made, made a him. point. i'm not saying that from day one they were like let's see you know let's make you know the deep states like let's make this guy a controlled opposition asset this is kind of a more loosey goosey version of just like them trolling him, but well, them it was also a really making him
0: pivotal moment for Alex Jones because it just propelled him into a new stage of like legitimacy because it was just so crazy that he got this footage, you know. And so yeah, I mean, I think whoever did this, it was there definitely was an intention to to do that, and you know, controlled opposition is definitely. A term that I would apply to someone like Alex Jones in a way, and this kind of is proof that there was someone from the inside helping helping to do that in one way or another.
1: Yeah, and not to get too crazy, but I mean, you've—I don't know if anyone out there has even seen John Ronson's special, "The Crazy Rulers of the World," which he made into a book as well. There's some weird stuff in there. Like, why would the BBC knowingly go to Bilderberg? I mean, Bilderberg people knew they were there, and then have him chased by a unmarked car you would think that people at Bilderberg would be like yeah let's not hassle the BBC and like chase them down the freeway but they did this like while they were filming the show and it's kind of like did they want this to be on the BBC because it went on the BBC did Bilderberg want to scare the shit out of people on purpose it's Mm -hmm. just you kind of have to ask these questions I think
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I guess let's move on to the next
0: yeah, we've been talking about all this for an hour. It's, it's like 0.3 in the <laughs> timeline.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, let's, let's get to some more headlines. Apparently, there's been a ridiculously disturbing trend of hate crimes against Asian Americans in this country. Robbie, is this just in the wake of COVID or what?
1: Yeah, it does seem to be just in the wake of COVID. There have been several statistical studies being done since COVID. Specifically since uh, I think over just the last year or so that have shown in, uh, uh, in some instances a twofold or a threefold increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. that's not exclusively though. there's also been a noticeable statistical rise in hate crimes against other minorities as well. gays, black mm-hmm. people in the United States. Latinos, it's all sort of being measured right now on the rise, but Asian Americans in particular stand out as the one that has statistically measured, measurable, and increased the most. It's hard to deny that there's a linkage between the two. I mean, it really is because it's like, where is that coming from? In the Bay Area, it's gone particularly bad. Um, A man died of a concussion. I think he was 82 who was just randomly pushed over. It wasn't even robbed. Like some of these incidents have seemed just like blatant hate crimes. Like all mm-hmm. elderly Asian people in Chinatown in Oakland have just been like pushed to the ground seemingly for no reason other than they're being targeted cuz they're Asian. So it's pretty fucked up and it's really actually disturbing to see that the right media is only covering it now because a couple of the suspects of the recent attacks have been black and they were caught on surveillance camera committing these crimes so the way the right media is spinning it is it's like oh the libs aren't talking about this because it's not white supremacy and it's like well you guys literally ignored every ki- hate crime against asian americans for an entire year just full yeah stop. they're all like they're only covering
0: uh, it when it suits their narrative yeah it's just so fucking
1: craven dude it's just like oh my god so the question is is this related to covid and all the rhetoric from the right media here blaming china for covid or just the general idea that we are sort of convinced narratively speaking even if you're not anti-china the general accepted narrative here is that it obviously came from china this is in some way even if you're the most dove not don't give shit about China at all type person in some way it's still China's fault if you really boil it down because mm-hmm. it came from there. So that's the narrative yeah. that we're told and everybody here believes, even if you're like the, the biggest leftist in the world. So it's, it's, that's where we're at. And I think that that at talking to Gumby for Christ on the last episode of media roots, I think mm-hmm. that ultimately that's going to have a really big impact just that concept alone that somehow this is China's fault.
0: Well, rhetoric matters, and rhetoric has direct impacts, and we've seen that over the Trump administration, all of his disgusting rhetoric about minorities. There was an increase in hate crimes against minorities, right? And so when you have not only the right media sphere constantly harping on the CCP and China and the Chinese virus and the Wuhan virus, you also have publications like Newsweek, you know, um, Time magazine, putting Xi Jinping as like the devil or like some puppet master. And then you have this seamless transition into the Biden administration that is talking about pivoting our foreign policy to focus on the great competitor, which is China, and essentially saying Trump's policy on China was the right policy, right? And his line is the right line. So Um, I'm not surprised at all. It's very, very sad that this is bleeding into actual attacks on Asian Americans. But that's what happens when the entire corporate owned media is towing a certain line to foster some sort of feeling and sentiment to manipulate and condition the masses to actually think that China is our enemy. It, it has very, very real life consequences. And it's just very sad to see this play out.
1: Well, just I think it's just important for people to remember that anytime this country is sort of paralyzed by fear, and let's not beat around the bush, this pandemic, regardless of what you feel about it, has been a climate of fear, intense fear, even if it doesn't feel like it anymore for the past year. That's a lot of fear to be going under. I don't, I mean, it's like a slow motion 9 11 that's been normalized in our brains. It's really odd, actually, to think about how weird the last year has been of being in a global pandemic. We're told to stay home all the time and shit. So, yeah, just really quickly, I mean, just mentioning some other things that have happened in the news recently is there was a book um, put out by a TV producer named Ira Rosen that claims that Bannon as early as 2017 believed that Trump had early signs of dementia and was going to try to oust him using the 25th amendment that somehow Bannon was already planning to coup Trump in some weird roundabout way in 2017. I don't know how believable that is, but it's interesting. Who is this guy? Um, I don't, you know, good question, but it's, it's, it's been reported in the news. It came out on a podcast called Skull degree. It has some legs. um, Mm -hmm but what's interesting about this is I have never seen anything like this reported. And this is something that we were speculating like months ago is Bannon. Is there any possibility that Bannon could be trying to fuck Trump in any way? I mean, like, it, cause it seems like he might have been at times. So maybe there's some element of truth to this. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, there's another weird narrative coming out just suddenly that um, people are starting to talk about how, You know, we talked about how Adam Curtis is bashing Jim Garrison. Mm -hmm. Uh, People are starting to talk about how uh, the real story with JFK was that Oswald was a Soviet agent and he was ordered to kill JFK by the Russians. Now, oddly, the two main people pushing this narrative, Abby, came out once in the New York Post as a headline and, and once again on Tucker Carlson's show. Uh, which is odd. The main guy feeding this narrative into the public sphere right now is none other than James Woolsey, Mr. Operation Dark Winter, Mr. you know, Iraq was behind the Oklahoma City bombing. He, he was saying that back in the 90s. So it's just an odd thing for this ex-CIA agent to be going around the media saying that's like getting reported as a news story. I don't understand that.
0: Well, he wasn't just an ex CIA agent; he was actually the chief of the CIA. Oh no, did I say agent? Yeah.
1: Oh my god, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I meant ex CIA director. Yeah, under Bill Clinton, he briefly served as director. But yeah, no, it's it's really fast. I mean, he's in Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's in the Committee for the Present Danger. China. He's plugged into all the shit. He's all over Epoch Times. It's bizarre. I I don't get why that's coming out now. It's I I don't. It's not coming out in a book. It's just coming out in the news, as if it's somehow relevant.
0: Well, like Gumby for Christ said, I love to hear that mockingbird sing. You know, you have this this CIA chief, former CIA chief, just on news outlets, just saying this, and people are like, "Oh my god, I can't believe it." It's like, really, the CIA is like. perp number one, right? For, for like its involvement in the JFK assassination. So it's like, hmm, would the CIA chief, would the ex-CIA chief have any uh, motivation to go out there and actually sprinkle a bit of anti-communism on the tired narrative of like, oh no, it was just the lone wolf. And oh, by the way, it was because he was a staunch communist and was being directed by the Soviet Union.
1: Dude, it's so weird. i I mean, there's a deleted scene in the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, where, like, an FBI agent takes one of the pe- people on Garrison's legal team aside. He, like, he sort of, like, grabs him, and he's like, come come here, I need to tell you something. He's like, don't you understand? He's like, the, He's like, Castro and the Soviets hired Oswald to kill JFK. He's like, that's why we're not talking about it. That's why the Warren Commission, like, covered it up. Castro. <laughs> and it's, like, the limited hangout, like like distant, you know, it's like the distraction, like red herring narrative. It's like, of course that's not what happened. Do you think that the U.S. government would have covered that up in any way? I mean, they wouldn't have been able
0: to. Yeah, why would they have wanted to? And the U.S. government had to be involved in the cover-up even if it was the, like, that's the whole point. Yeah, it's It's just like saying Even if it was the mafia, the cover-up was still, made the government complicit. So why the hell would the government cover up any role? That the Soviet Union. It, like they had did to it for what
1: had noble intentions. It's almost like saying that, well, the Bush administration, of course, 9 11 wasn't an inside job, but they had to, like, they covered up the Saudi role. And it's like, well, why? I mean, at that, yeah, how, right. how yeah. extreme was that? What do you mean they covered it up? Like, why would they just cover it up? Like, why would they not? They covered it up? Like, why? I mean, Yeah, it's just, right. When they
0: were trying <laughs> to destroy the Soviet Union with like every fiber of its being, the United States, why would they yeah. do that? Why?
1: Dude, so, so Tucker Carlson, of course, has some weird cred somehow still in like deep politics, libertarian conspiracy scene. And he did an extremely odd segment, Abby, saying that uh, they went looking for QAnon, but he could not find any evidence that it existed in this incredibly bizarre segment um, it was just like a total gaslighting. So it's worth finding out where the public is getting all this false information, this disinformation, as we'll call it. So we checked. We spent all day trying to locate the famous QAnon, which in the end we learned is not even a website. If it's out there, we could not find it. Then we checked Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter feed because we have heard she traffics in disinformation, and told us, but nothing there. You couldn't find it? Like what a fucking bizarre, just straight up lie.
0: Like was he tell. was he talking about the movement or was he talking about how like Q the actual person Q isn't really a thing?
1: No, no, you're at, you're you're trying to ascribe more like um like nuance to what he was saying. No, he straight up just like conflates the two, oh, wow. and just like makes it seem like it doesn't exist, Abby. I'm not right, even like it's kidding. a
0: totally overblown thing by the media.
1: We complain about people downplaying and saying the cap what happened on January six was nothing and get over it. or yeah. it's like fine. I mean, this is just so much weirder than that. It's like, we, we all saw this shit. It was, QAnon was one of the craziest things that's ever happened in American
0: politics. Right, especially when it comes to January 6th and just to tamp down on that and be like, oh, it just isn't a thing. It's like,
1: But it sort of also shows the genius or the brilliance of what QAnon was. It absolves any responsibility of like anyone. Because what he's saying is almost can be believable and like, to the extent where it's like, yeah, you almost have to look beyond the surface to see that the trump administration was like actively pr- promoting this and being part of it it's not obvious you know you have to kind of learn the the l- lingo a little bit it's sort of so he's playing on that ignorance as well um mm-hmm. which is just well yeah toxic i mean it part. is
0: like like we've said before it's like the two Beliefs at the same time, like the fact that the media zeroed in on QAnon because it just made the Trump administration and his followers look so fucking bad. But at the same time, like it is bad (laughs) and it is insane. And it is true that a huge percentage of his supporters are QAnon believers. So it's like it's interesting that the corporate media jumped on that and the anti-Trump media is now like talking about it all the time. Like I bear I probably watch corporate news maybe like once a month. But like oh, literally wow. the last time I turned it on, um, they were talking about, Q, they had like a package about QAnon. <laughs> and I was just like, this is so weird, man. Their whole strategy, instead of giving people anything whatsoever, instead of holding Biden's feet to the fire on anything that he promised, just to paint the Republican Party now as the party of Marjorie Taylor Green and the party of QAnon. And that's how they're just going to ride the wave to the next election through the midterms and just hope that it sticks because anti-Trumpism isn't their golden ticket anymore
1: it's uh man it's depressing
0: it's fucking
1: depressing dude i mean (laughs) and the q and on thing is weird too because i'm yeah i can understand to a certain extent why twitter i mean that leaked recording that project veritas was like we're gonna get kicked off the moment we. Post this leaked video of Jack Dorsey talking about, you know, Twitter censorship, and in the video they leaked is like Jack Dorsey like basically admitting that the reason they banned Trump's account was because of QAnon, <laughs> and then they thought mm-hmm. they thought he was just gonna like, well, in so many words, they thought he was gonna somehow flip the QAnon switch. I he mean, he
0: could have. I mean, I mean, he yeah, I'm surprised he didn't. You so know? like
1: when I saw that video, I'm actually like, this look doesn't make Twitter actually look that bad at all. Like I mean, I'm sure they. I mean, yeah. and they do bad shit, but the fact that they've banned and purged so many QAnon accounts on social media in general, or across the web or YouTube, it's kind of an eerie silence now. Where I don't even, I feel uncomfortable not knowing what the QAnon movement's up to, and having to do extra work and like dive deep into these networks like Gab and these stupid places like Telegram to actually figure out what they're doing, because it's like that's what makes it so
0: much. Weirder to have it's eerie news outlets like CNN amplify and magnify QAnon. Meanwhile, they have been rendered obsolete from like
1: I mean, in a weird way, Abby. This is going to sound insane, but it's true, and and I think you will even agree with this. Alex Jones represented some competition to the media ecosystem, the mainstream media ecosystem. Like he was sort of that main guy for a while, who was like, the mainstream media is fake. know the fake now he wouldn't say fake news but basically that's what his whole thing was about that you're being propagandized by all these media networks. QAnon also represents in some weird way a competition to what they're doing too. To have this alternative reality lane that's just telling Mm -hmm. people never to trust anything they see from any media channels. I mean it is just sort of interesting like to that that might play into why they're so fixated on getting rid of it and trying to erase it. I don't know. I mean,
0: (laughs) well, yeah. And then you have Twitter also coming out now and, you know, deleting dozens of accounts, of course, for the crime of like originating in Iran or Russia, or there's never any proof to explain why dozens of accounts are purged randomly day to day Mm -hmm. um, for its nefarious association with like quote unquote enemy States or whatever. But one of these statements, I think it was an actual Twitter press release. If I'm no, not mistaken, no, it is. It's on
1: there. You can click on it still. Um, oh wow! You, you can go. It's it's the Twitter safety yeah, blog. Yeah. Do you want to
0: read read the quote because it is pretty
1: crazy? Sure. It just it's called. It's from February 23rd, um, 2021. It says disclosing networks of state-linked information operations. So, you think, okay, maybe they're just going to say this is a state run account, like they sort of selectively do, even though they, Mm -hmm. I guess, they don't do that yet on RFERL, which is our state run media agency. So, that already shows that it's not really, you know, real. Um, But it says that basically their investigation found and removed a network of 69 fake accounts that can be reliably tied to Russian state actors. A number of these accounts amplified narratives that were aligned with the Russian government, while other subset of the network focused on undermining faith in the NATO alliance and its stability. Now that's unclear if they're saying there that both of these groups of accounts they were monitoring and that they purged were both linked to the Russian government, or if one of them was linked to the Russian government and the other one was just undermining faith in the NATO alliance and its stability. Now, if they're just saying that these are all Russian linked accounts and one of them was doing that, that doesn't sound as bad as the way that I originally read it. But that's still odd. Who is feeding them this information reliably tied to the Russian Russian state actors? How? I mean, that's the part right. that they don't say in here. Who are they working with? Um, it says that they have an information operations archive but they don't say who they're working with. They mention the IRA, the Russian troll agency. Oh, actually, no, here's what's crazy. They admit straight up uh, that previously in September 30th, 2020, it says on Twitter, based on intel provided by the FBI, last night we removed approximately 130 accounts that appeared to originate in Iran. So who knows how often they're working with the state and what does the state show them to do this you know and do they just have someone from the state in their office like how fucking incestuous is this actually it's just very
0: opaque it's just so disturbing that twitter is just openly working in concert with like u.s foreign policy goals to purge you know quote unquote like state affiliated actors without again any evidence whatsoever to show us what does this even mean you know like we already know that so many you know hundreds of people have been purged that were just simply promoting like pro chavista talking points to counter the venezuela coup narrative um, and so i of course i don't think that this was proven that people were and even if they were working with for, with the russian government who cares who cares yeah it's right? like like why <laughs> why why does twitter have the right to take down accounts that are affiliated with the Russian government. Like, even on on its face, that doesn't make any sense to me. I was just going to say, it should be obvious to anyone that it's just very oddly selective. When
1: have you ever seen Twitter saying, we had to take down 100 accounts because they were linked to the U.S. government? Or we had to take down this many accounts because they were linked to BP, trying to push propaganda, saying that some oil spill wasn't bad? I mean we already know that the Shepshitz has been all the time. So why do they only go after U S adversaries on Twitter? Yeah. It's because it's probably on an arm of the state. I mean, yeah, I don't know how exactly the, the getting into the weeds, how it exactly works, but it is, I mean, fucking is.
0: Yeah. I mean, just the fact that they're saying the crime of undermining faith in the NATO Alliance, (laughs) like that's a good thing to undermine faith in the NATO Alliance. That's, uh, Really, really just revealing right there that like is kind of the whole foreign policy shift between Trump and Biden in the first place is like Biden wants to build back up the NATO alliance in order to like economically weaken and isolate um, Russia and China because they want a unipolar world and they don't like the fact that Russia and China have gained strength because the U.S. had such imperial hubris that it got stuck in a quagmire of its own doing in the Middle East for the last twenty years, so it is just really strange to be like they're undermining faith in the NATO, NATO alliance. It's like, why is that bad? Who gives a shit about the NATO alliance? I like, know, I don't, so... I certainly don't give a fuck about the NATO alliance. That's a bad thing. It's a junior collaborators of the empire who are imposing U.S. empire and capitalism.
1: How many people below the age of thirty who like work at Twitter, like even remotely care about that? They're like, such a weird you know, outdated thing Like nobody who's young actually has been, like, successfully brainwashed into believing that's important. That's like a older right. person's thing.
0: Oh, yeah. You know, it's just well, we- it's just
1: a weird thing for Twitter to even mention it all on their I safety know. page. It's, it's embarrassing, like, dude, it's, like,
0: actually. embarrassing. Yeah, exactly. It's, like, who's writing these press releases? And did Aren't Bellingcat they, like, write this? A did <laughs> Alliance for Securing <laughs> Democracy write this? Did the Brookings Institute write this? It feels like they did, to me. Right, and then you see this too, which is uh, a think tank that you have often talked about, the CSIS, um, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a highly influential think tank directly funded by weapons contractors that a lot of Biden's team stems from. Right. There's a revolving door between this think tank and Biden's administration. Um, And it also has like, you know, heavy hitters like Kissinger and Brzezinski, I think, like as advisors. But anyway, Interesting new report came out from CSIS talking about public-private partnerships, a.k.a. big tech, alongside the U.S. government, need to, quote, expand its toolkit to defend the legitimate rights of political protesters globally, including preserving the digital rights of peaceful democratic activists while muting... Muting harmful mis and disinformation from violent state and non-state actors seeking to tip the balance in various countries.
1: Well, that's interesting. That's um, state and non-state actors. So wh- right. how do they define the other one? I mean, state actors is one thing because it's like, like we don't fucking, I've not seen any proof that the people who actually did the hack of the DNC or even if that really indeed happened was done by like the GRU yet. Yeah. Right. If even if these are just like foreign hackers or something, or or foreign networks doing this, like we already know that like cyber attribution is very like spurious and hard to figure out. There's probably a lot of times where people use like something that appears to come from another country when it's actually it comes from a completely different country. I mean that probably is how they do it every time. How are they de- really determining these things? It's simply not believable that they have this clear of an idea of. Who these people are coming, you know, what countries these people are coming from.
0: Well, right, and since everything's like in a digital space now, pretty much ever since I feel like the Egyptian uprising, like, Twitter was heralded as like a protest tool and like a revolutionary, iconic thing that you can actually like organize the revolution on, which we know is the opposite. the The opposite is true, right obviously it's a tool of the state and this is just so clear it's like they know how powerful these mediums are and they're literally just writing up papers about how people who are opposing u.s hegemony and like foreign policy goals in these countries need to be muted or purged from these networks and the people who agree and align with u.s foreign policy goals need to be um highlighted and boosted essentially so it's quite cynical and just hilarious that this is just like laid out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> once you read these papers it's just like, oh okay, great. Like but the difference is that, you know, the US typically uses organizations like USAID or the National Endowment for Democracy, you know, in places like Ukraine and other places to actually fund opposition groups and just funnel hundreds of millions of dollars like they did in Venezuela to Juan Guaido. But this is just so much more nefarious because this is like tech companies who are pretending like they are not joined at the hip with the U.S. government. But when you see papers like this, it's quite obvious that they bow to whatever the U.S. government wants them to do. And you can go back to Google changing the algorithms right, you know, right after the DNI report came, came out. But it just is like, this is just our world now, Robbie. And they're just openly saying that this is going to happen in the future whenever, quote unquote, mass protests or uprisings happen in countries that the U.S. wants to overthrow.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just going to get worse and worse. And, you know, I I just don't think there's any way really to reverse it other than just not relying (laughs) on these things. I mean, just today, Whitney Webb, who we've had on the podcast before, was hit with warnings from Patreon, basically saying that she will have her account suspended if she doesn't remove COVID misinformation. Now, Whitney was given no actual examples of what to take down to have her account get back into good standing from Patreon. Pretty shitty, and the email saying here are the examples of what you can remove. The section where it should show an example was actually literally blank. So that's Mm -hmm. what kind of customer service you get if you're caught in this in this net that's coming for pretty much everybody. It's not partisan. That's the thing that the right has hijacked this. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the fact that this is coming for all of us. Um, and I think it is just something to seriously consider. And it sucks.
0: Yeah, I mean, we see that often on YouTube now. They're just arbitrarily taking down entire accounts, wiping them clean with no warning or explanation whatsoever and no recourse. You know, in the past, they'll say like, okay, this video broke our terms of service and then you can appeal it right? Or do something. But it's like some of these accounts that I've seen from people that are like smaller time alternative media figures, they can't even protest or appeal because their account doesn't exist. So they have no account to actually appeal it from. Uh, We're seeing it across the board. And it is very scary because Whitney's research is really solid. And when you're looking at something like YouTube, it's very obvious to me that accounts like Steven Crowder or, you know, giant accounts that ha- that bring in tons of money for YouTube ads, they don't care about those accounts. They don't care about spreading deliberate misinformation or whatever, or like bigotry or harassment or whatever that violates their terms of service yeah. all the time. And we've talked about how YouTube is primarily responsible for peddling disinformation anyway, you know, but not not just about COVID, but about everything, like the alt-right gateway, I'm very worried about Empire Files being taken down. You know, it just is going to take one strike. Something about Israel. You know, I'm I'm waiting for the day. And it's going to be an absolute tragedy. Because I fear that I will have very little recourse. I'm a very small channel. And our entire livelihood depends on our YouTube. And we built it up for five years. There are semi-alternatives to YouTube. But we all know how difficult that would be to build it up from scratch on a different network. And so it's just... It is coming for all of us. And I don't know what the solution is other than we have to get back to like peer to peer building up of newsletters. So, anyone who's listening to this right now, go to mediaroots.org, sign up to our newsletter, because that is the most direct way to get our information, get our radio show. I mean, this could happen on SoundCloud too. You know, this could happen to us for Media Roots Radio.
1: We don't know. Yeah. And also, I mean, let's just be real here too about what the social media networks encourage they encourage clickbait they encourage Mm -hmm. content that's not evergreen that's just trying to chase every news headline in the day they encourage things that are in my opinion behaviors that are sort of play into the sort of capitalistic system the mainstream media the way that they make money off of media like you're saying like go back to the things that we know still work even if you're You know, even if somehow the internet is not even available to you, you could still go back to physical mailing lists. Um, Even something like, you know, um, like The Empire Files, what you guys are doing is great because you can release something like that on like a physical medium and it would still be watchable and still be important information to take in. Most of these YouTube political shows are not things you can watch on like a disc and still find entertaining. You would have to watch them like within a couple days that they came out. Mm -hmm. So... That's, I think, something people need to think about too. Like, what is your strongest work if you're doing this kind of work? And think about maybe even putting out a physical medium of some kind or having something that you can, you know, a physical product you can sell, even merchandise that you can just sell directly off your own website.
0: I was just going to say that with the surveillance state as pervasive as it is and with You know, everything that we do in terms of digital communication being spied on and surveilled by the government and by like corporate entities, we know that revolutionary organizing is not going to be done on Gmail or over Twitter or Facebook anyway. Social media is almost designed to make you just completely isolated and powerless and pessimistic because it's just such an over inundation of our um, senses and overstimulation and just like it's just a really really disturbing mental trap in a lot of ways so anyway just going off on a complete rant here but yeah
1: it is i guess let's move on to the minimum wage stuff because economically people are still fucking struggling and the democrats and everybody in office is just proving themselves once again to just be total pieces of shit
0: Yeah. So Biden campaigned on many things, right? Um, Building back better, baby. Uh, But he campaigned one of the main promises, you know, one of the very few promises, but one of the main ones nonetheless was the $15 an hour minimum wage increase. Now, this is something that's desired by the overwhelming majority of Americans. This is something that has been proven time and again to take millions of people out of poverty. The right wing Lies about raising the minimum wage have all been debunked. If your business is not able to sustain, if you pay your workers a living wage, then maybe your business should shut down. Um, So anyway, Biden was promising this. And with uh, the majority control over the House and Senate and him being the president, of course, you can pass this. Of course, you can pass pretty much anything that you want, right? Um, I don't even remember the notion of a parliamentarian existing at all. My entire adult life paying attention to politics. But all of a sudden, this random, obscure figure comes into play to actually just block this (laughs) addition to the stimulus bill, Um, this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that's being heralded as like the most progressive piece of legislation in the history of this country, Robbie. Um, I don't know why. Because it has this minuscule stimulus check for people of whatever $1,200 or whatever $1,400 to subsidize Trump's 600 to give us that $2,000 check that we were all promised, that one-time $2,000 check. Apparently, renewal of federal unemployment benefits and a boost to the child tax credit. Other than that, I don't actually know what is in the 1.9 trillion dollars. It's a lot of fucking money, probably hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to a lot of foreign governments subsidizing Israel, uh, giving money to, you know, foundations like the Gates Foundation. I know that there's like a billion dollar grant for that. Um, Who knows, right? I haven't looked at like the nuances of what what else is uh, getting money through this. But I will say that One of the main pieces of legislation that was supposed to be earmarked in this was the minimum wage, which we were all promised, which we all know is a very good thing. Even conservatives in Florida voted for an amendment to raise the minimum wage in the last election, which overwhelmingly passed. And just to give people a little bit of context about the minimum wage, because the minimum wage has not been raised since 2009, which is 12 years ago. Um, Back then, it was $6.55 an hour. Today, it's $7.25 an hour. That is the federal minimum wage, Um, $7.25. That is like literally, I just got a coffee today, and it was like $6. You work for an entire hour, and you can afford a coffee from like one of these bougie coffee shops in LA. That's what you're fucking slaving over then you have to pay rent. Everything is commodified in this country healthcare, housing, everything, right? Um, unlike other industrialized advanced capitalist countries that actually give people healthcare, we have to pay for everything. And there's a reason why 50% of the people in this country are either in poverty or living near poverty, living paycheck to paycheck because of poverty wages. Poverty wages. The fact that the minimum wage is $7.25 despite the increase in the cost of living. This is just like totally nonsensical. If you just like look at the last 50 years in this country, the minimum wage would be $24 an hour if it kept up with productivity and with inflation and the cost of living. But that's not at all what's happened. It's been stuck like this, like increasing maybe like a quarter or 50 cents um, basically, for decades. Meanwhile, prices and inflation continue to go up. So, it's disgusting, Robbie, that um, that fifteen dollars an hour is considered this controversial thing. That it's considered a, a you know a close step to just full blown socialism. That you actually have just fear mongering constantly about how Biden and the Democrats are socialists, and the fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage is a socialist thing. It's like, no, this is called a living fucking wage. And if you can't afford to pay people a living wage, your business should be shut down. I run a business, not even a business, like this media organization, which we employ, me and Mike, um, and sometimes you, sometimes John, and sometimes our research assistant. And I would never dream of paying anyone below $15 an hour. It's insane, insane to think of any business paying someone less than that. There is nowhere that you can live in the entire country and pay for a single bedroom or maybe it's a two bedroom apartment on the federal minimum wage. That is a study that has been done. So you literally cannot live in this country. And the fact that we're even talking about this and that it's controversial and the fact that Democrats did not stick their neck out to fight for this and all of these you know, progressive Democrats, uh, AOC and Elon Omar, it's like, okay, yeah, I get the whole argument about putting the Medicare for all thing to a vote and having it fail. This is like, if you're not going to fight for this, if you're not going to stick your neck out and fight for a $15 an hour minimum wage, what, what are we talking about here? What are we doing here, guys? We are in a pandemic. Eight million more people have been plunged into poverty just in the last year, You have to fight. We have to fight. And another big problem, Robbie, is that unions, all of these unions, like we have like a non-existent labor presence in this country, which historically is the only movement that has really pushed policy like this. Right. And so you look at the state of unions today. All of my friends that are in unions, they were told like they actually had to, as part of their job, campaign for joe biden and the democrats like phone banking door-to-door knocking oh god instead of fighting in the streets as like a progressive front pushing the democrats on things like 15 dollars an hour minimum wage but it's just so strange how it's been folded into the democratic establishment and like it's like the democrats know they need the unions and the unions know they need the democrats but it's like they're not pushing them from the left really on these things and there's absolutely no fighting forces pushing for something like $15 an hour minimum wage. Even Trump, even Trump promised in 2016 that he would raise the minimum wage to at least $10. So you have this, this crazy reality that we're in now where it's just a parallel like universe. You know, like you look at the rest of the world, everyone else is living a completely different life. In America, we are exceptionally fucked. We have... 500,000 people dead from COVID. We have no healthcare. We can't even get a living wage. Um, we have Biden saying nothing will change, proudly boasting that. Before this was even voted on, Robbie, Biden went on CBS and all these other news networks, and he was like, yeah, he's like, I really want the minimum wage hike. He's like, but, you know, the rules of the Senate, I, it's just I can't do anything about it. He's like, it probably won't pass. It probably won't pass because of this filibuster, which is not even a law. Chuck Schumer has the majority. Chuck Schumer could easily have just said, no, we're not going to use the filibuster and require like 60 percent of Democrats to vote for this. We're going to just use our leverage because people fucking voted for us so they can get a like so they can get out of poverty. <laughs> like, and crazy. instead, they just left it all up to the filibuster, which is fake. Like, they literally don't need to use this filibuster. And this obscure parliamentarian, this woman, who just came out of the shadows and was like, nope, actually, no, we can't put the $15 an hour minimum wage in the COVID relief package. And everyone's like, "What is the, who is the parliamentarian? Who is this person? Why is this person deciding whether or not to put the $15 minimum wage in here? And um, Walter Smolarik for Liberation News wrote a good a good comment about it. He just said he said this on CBS and all these other news outlets because he wanted to signal to corporate America, the right wing, and to the Senate parliamentarian that he did not want it to go forward because it would have been too damaging to Biden's efforts to forge quote-unquote bipartisan unity with the right wing. That's really what's going on here. Biden never wanted it. He was all doing it tokenistically um, just to appease the people who voted him in, and he's moved on, Robbie. He's moved on. And we know, you know, there was those six Democrats or whatever who voted against, and and all we needed was the Democrats to vote for this. But six Democrats, including, like, Joe Manchin, someone who's like, oh, he's just a centrist Democrat. It's like, no, centrism almost sounds, like, good and reasonable. This is a reactionary right-wing position. You are voting for, po- like, to keep people in poverty. Like, let's stop calling these people centrists. Someone made that point the other day, and I was like, that's actually a really good point. Like, centrists almost make them sound, like, reasonable, you know? But one of the six Democrats who voted down the minimum wage, of course, Kristen Cinema, someone who was a meme for, like, 72 hours because of her curtsy and outfit that looked like she was, like, Alicia Silverstone and Clueless, voting down giddily, the minimum wage. Um, I think everyone was shocked about her because she just has a really interesting trajectory. I mean, she started off in the Green Party, Ralph Nader's campaign. She even co-hosted a radio show with a 9-11 truther during the Iraq War. That's hilarious. And so now she, it's just bizarre to see her now. Like, the it's Man like, Jones dude, effect. what is wrong with you, dude? <laughs> That's you weird, know?
1: very funny. It's weird to see yeah. that there's people from the truther scene who went, to like generic lib and then, and then also like generic Trump. like totally Yeah, like I don't branches. even know.
0: I mean, I don't even know what her politics are now, but it's just so disappointing. But also what's really annoying is people have like, you know, posed that rhetorically being like, oh, what happened to her? And then people have used it like, you know, blue check libs and shit are just like, oh, well, that just shows you the Green Party is just like ideologically bankrupt and means nothing. It's like, no, that's not what this means at all. <laughs> like why would you take that away from this?
1: Because <laughs> we just want to bash every third party. All of them, dude. I'm the only ones allowed right. to vote for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's where we're at, Robbie. Build back better, baby. We did it. We fucking did it, dude. Did you we see We built him, back better.
1: Did you see Biden completely flubbed? Um, he was trying to remember Anthony Blinken's name.
0: And um, Lloyd Austin.
1: Yeah, maybe it was Lloyd Austin. And he. it was fucking crazy, actually, that video clip.
0: Not surprised. I mean, Jesus. I mean, you know, he can't even remember his wife's name. So I'm not surprised he can't remember Lloyd Austin's
1: name. It really does seem like he has dementia. Whoever it is that lobbies all these Democrats in office, they are... They have basically convinced them that this is not the right time or – I don't even know. I mean they're just getting money from these lobbyists. So I don't know what propaganda there is being sold to them, but they're they're not going to do it. I mean it's just too – it's too much money that these corporations are going to have to spend. I mean it's going to be huge for them. It's going to be a really big deal for them. They control all of Congress and the Senate. So
0: yeah. You're right. (laughs) You're totally right. (laughs) So that's where we're at. And we can get into, you know, his big, his big war push um, and his big first forward policy bombing. But um, do you want to talk about this, uh, this new app? What is it? An app called Clubhouse?
1: It's just an app for now. Yeah, it's um, supposed to be a place where people can have challenging and confrontational conversations in a group. Uh, and you're, you're supposed to be able to do it just casually over your phone. It's like a audio only group chat where I guess the moderator can choose or I don't know who decides who gets to talk at once. But I've heard some of them, they get pretty chaotic where there is no moderation and people are just talking over each other. But basically, um, it seems to have been become a magnet for uh, sort of the intellectual dark web uh, sort of um, scene. And surprise, it's, surprise. Yeah, and it's basically this intellectual dark web stealth neocon virus super spreader app where sort of sketchy, quote, right populist people who are basically just like stealth neocon think tankers, um, academics, and these intellectual dark web celebrities, you know, hang out with sometimes big people like Joe Rogan and Elon Musk come in the rooms. What they do is they just talk a lot about how woke culture is the new fascism. Um, they talk about how bad China is and how America's losing the competition with China. So there's basically just some straight up neocons in there. Like I heard a guy who was in a room with Michael Tracy and Michael Tracy didn't say anything. I just got a notification that Michael Tracy was in a little clubhouse room. So I got in the room to real quick to see what the discussion was about. And it was just like dominated by this dude who just sounded like he was just straight up regurgitating like Robert Kagan's vomit about the liberal order and how we, ha- we should be thankful that we have Liberalism in our genetic code as Americans, and that it really is America's role to keep up the liberal order, and that China is going to win, and just all this really generic shit. So I'm thinking, okay, Michael Tracy's just hanging out in these rooms with like straight up neocon think tankers who sound like Robert Kagan. That's not a surprise. Um, But then I've, you know, I followed Barry Weiss. But what I found interesting. Was that Barry Weiss is part of a lot of uh, Zionism um, sort of rooms, or actually, Abby? What's interesting is sort of uh, rooms or group presenting themselves as Zionists who are being oppressed. One and specifically was the Zionist New Congress, which was a group of college students who claim they are being oppressed for being Zionist on college campuses, and uh, that one was very fascinating to listen to. Um, because it was just straight up fucking bullshit like the whole time i mean it was you know it was just nonsensical stuff about how someone burned uh israeli flag and how um offended everybody was and how they can never burn a palestinian flag because they don't have equal rights (laughs) like there was shit like that holy fuck dude i mean it was just it was very cringe but i guess what was interesting to me is to see that when you have mixed in with all this, is like you even had a bunch of rooms too talking about how the corporate wokeness is becoming a problem, you know, corporate woke culture. How big of a problem is this? And it's like, and I don't know if it's just because the people I'm following, I mean I'm sure it is, probably because of that, but it's just interesting to see that there is crossover between the Zionism, the neocon liberal order people, and the intellectual dark web and the anti woke and the anti, you know, big tech hijack debate people like it there's a crossover between all of them i mean and you really can see it active on clubhouse so you know if you need any more convincing that this is all sort of the part of the same general network of agendas then you just look at clubhouse i mean it's very obvious there and i guess you know to me that brings to mind the fact that barry weiss actually has been paid abby Uh, By the same Israeli lobby that actually sent like a bunch of letters to Joe Rogan to try to get you kicked off his program. She has been paid by Stand With Us. And so it's just weird to see this person, Barry Weiss, getting all this cred now for going against cancel culture when she's basically just like a cutout for the Israeli lobby. I mean, as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, she always was doing that. That was her pretty much tenure. At college was just silencing Palestinian activists and professors who she deemed sympathetic to Palestine. So to hear someone and see someone like her now talking all about how big tech needs to be fought,
1: corporate censorship is bad, stop cancel culture. I mean, yeah, she tried to get Palestinian students um, shut down. She's never going to talk about anything having to do with BDS, which is like, there are literal laws. I mean, this is like beyond... (laughs) a corporation banning it because look try searching for BDS right now on Twitter. I'm not trying to pull a Dave Rubin. I did this experiment for a few hours one day and uh-huh. I and I got the same results. Try search I'm not telling you to do it. I've been trying to tell our audience uh-huh. search for the acronym BDS, not the hashtag, because the hashtag will pull up the results you would expect. But the the acronym BDS on Twitter pulls up results that do not make any sense compared to other acronyms. It pulls up like tons of results that just have BD, that just have uh, DS. No, and it, it's like a jumble of all these results where it's like, why is not not pulling up results that only have BDS? Like it does when I type any other acronym that's like three letters long. Mm-hmm. So that's odd. So that I mean, obviously Twitter is probably shadow banning it or censoring it in some way. But, like, there's laws on the books, Abby, that have made it, like, illegal to practice <laughs> yeah. BDS. Yeah. And these fucking intellectual dark web people are never going to
0: talk about it. Why? Well, and not just them, Robbie. I mean, think about how little even alternative media oh, yeah. and, like, so-called leftists covered my lawsuit against Georgia. It's, like, crazy. It's, like, think about it. And not to say that you shouldn't have covered Nathan Robinson being fired from The Guardian, the editor of Current Affairs magazine, being fired for The Guardian for making a joke about Israel on Twitter, but it's a little bit different when we're talking about states that have imposed laws yeah. preventing you from practicing your First Amendment. That is like a whole overarching thing that is just huge, right? A huge monumental thing that needs to be covered. But instead you have like this obsession with um, like how woke culture is the new fascism, which is just so absurd. It's a total dilution of what fascism means. And it's just like these same people who will, who will um, bemoan about how wokeness is fascism will downplay fascism. Like they'll, they'll just say like, oh, we're, there's no fascist threat, of um, you know, all of the shit. But then, oh, but liberalism is actually fascism. It's like, okay. And, and there is some truth to the idea that this like big tech
1: Silicon Valley combined with like the Democrats egging on and a lot of liberals encouraging it is, does feel fascistic uh, in a different way. Like there is right. a, tr- there is truth to that. So the, but it's like, they're, they're not, it, all these people who are doing that, like you said, are downplaying the other form of fascism. Mm-hmm. They they all they did was downplay what happened on January 6th. All they do is mm-hmm. downplay QAnon. In fact, all they, you know, you even see Blue Anon trending now among Jack Posobick, Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens. You know, that was trending a couple of years ago, and now it's turned into this way to just erase what QAnon was. It's like, yeah, the Democrats were fucking nuts for pushing Russiagate, and a bunch of like intelligence uh, people were pushing that too. It was very sus and very fucking crazy. But that doesn't at the same time mean that QAnon was like not a big deal and that you need to draw a false equivalency. So I just think that all that shit just really, it's the same disingenuous behavior we just continuously see.
0: Well, just to give people a little bit more context, this clubhouse thing was just very novel until Elon Musk apparently hosted a room with the Robin Hood CEO. So going off of the whole hype about Robin Hood with the, you know, allegedly like taking down traders and all that stuff um, with Wall Street for whatever. I I didn't really follow that very closely, but it just seems like a perfect storm. It's like Elon Musk hosting a room with this guy. And apparently the thing about clubhouse is that it's an audio conversation that disappears. And so it makes you feel like you're like listening into this exclusive private phone call. Yeah. That's why I've been
1: recording them. FYI, I've been, I did a recording. I'll talk about it in a second, but yeah, go ahead.
0: Um, I mean, it honestly just seems boring to me. I don't give a shit what Barry Weiss and Elon Musk have to say in order to, like, get access to this. I mean, I'm I'm glad that you're recording them because I, I appreciate you doing that, but, like, I don't want to listen to Barry Weiss talk about um, censorship and stuff. So, I mean, overall, I feel like I'm not surprised at all that these people are in this space. Um, these are the same people who will hijack every new medium because they are, you know, they have this victim complex and this martyrdom where they're like, we've been oppressed, even though they have these giant platforms, you know, like all of these people like are boosted by like the most popular accounts. Like Barry Weiss had like a New York times column. It's just like, no one, none of you are oppressed, you know, just because your coworkers didn't like you. Like that doesn't make you a victim of like cancel culture. You quit yourself Right. So I'm not I'm not surprised at all that these people are hijacking this, because as long as this tech censorship narrative is going against the quote unquote right wing, they will always be immediately infiltrating these spaces and like claiming them as their own, like parlor, you know, like things that could be actually alternatives to the stifling, increasing censorship across the board that we know is actually bipartisan. But instead, the right wing. And these, the IDW has taken it over and made it extremely unappealing for anyone that's not in their mode of thinking. And so, whether it's Parlor, whether it's Clubhouse, or whether it's um, you know, it's all the same.
1: Yeah. And I look to, you know, the people that I see as the most influential. And whatever you think about Barry White, she obviously does seem dumb. She seems like she is getting like scripted talking points, kind of similar to Jamie Kirchick in certain ways. I'm not saying she's purely a appendage of the Israeli lobby necessarily, but it does seem like the intellectual dark web itself was some kind of political op. It, 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 the appearance makes it seem like it's all these people who are being under all this pressure and scrutiny, and they're all, you know, under the threat of being canceled, and they're all banding together to fight back. That's the perception, right? But what if, I mean, how do we know that's what it is? is? I'm just, It's like, I hate to sound paranoid again, but it's like, I mean, it's fucking, it is sus. How it's basically, look at what Clubhouse really is. It's basically almost like a crowdsourced version of DC think tank culture. What did I just mm-hmm. tell you that it covers? The same mm-hmm. type of shit that boomers were covering about cancel, you know, PC culture, the Heritage Foundation, all these same think tanks that we heard about that were pushing like social conservatism. It's just a newer generation of people pushing now. And now I guess Clubhouse seems to be like a fragmented little grassroots, so-called grassrootsy crowdsourced version of the DC think tank scene. So now people can have these little off-the-record conversations,
0: these difficult conversations where they basically just spread conservative ideas. Well, that's a really good point. It's almost like making it cool for people to, like, you don't it's want to so read lame, a policy prescription from CNAS, right? Yeah. But you you do want to listen into Barry Weiss talking to, Eric I don't know, Weinstein. Matt Stoller, <laughs> Eric yeah, Weinstein about, like, China and Israel, because it makes you feel like you're inside, uh, doing like inside baseball, but it's like the secret club that's been ostracized by the mainstream and it's like super, like, edgy you know and it's really not it's just rebranding the same old neoconservatism that the US empire is peddling to push its agenda it's like this isn't like cool it's it's like so beyond not like uh, be, like
1: it's so beyond uncool that it's like it's actually just pathetic and cringe in a way like i listened to one like i followed Matt Stoller and i saw when it, like as soon as he, you know he started Going into a room, you get notified on your phone, which is convenient. I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. awful. It sounds like hell what I'm describing. Mm-hmm. To to get notified on your phone when Matt Stoller is talking on Clubhouse, but that's where I was, and I went immediately when I saw it. I went straight into the room, and I was subjected to literally five minutes of some fucking idiot talking about how brave everyone was for joining this conversation wow. today. Like literally, they were. He was patting everybody on the back. In a Clubhouse channel where there was only like 15 people in the fucking room. Dude. I was just like, what the fuck is this shit? These
0: people are like out of control, narcissistic children. The fuck is happening? You know what else is really funny? I was looking this up because I actually didn't know about Clubhouse until you told me about it. And in like half the articles I found about it were ding, ding, ding about China about how Clubhouse is being used by millions of Chinese people because they're trying to get around the, the stifling censorship and repression from the Chinese government to talk about the human rights abuses and the Uyghurs and the repression in China, Robbie. So uh, amazingly, China blocked Clubhouse and how much is that revealing of like this horrible, tyrannical society that, that suppresses the internet for all its citizens? It's like, okay, wait, but actually, let's take a step back and realize that the US government actually banned TikTok or like tried to cancel TikTok because of its extreme paranoia that it was somehow some Chinese spying app. So really, what's the difference? I mean,
1: it is very interesting that you even say that because, yeah, there was a lot of anti-China talk just when i was casually going around but like i said you know it could just be who i followed Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's interesting i mean it's it does seem like there is everything somehow becomes this we're better than china type like (laughs) Like, we're more free than china look how fucking great we are i mean the uyghur thing is just so fascinating because it like really does take the focus away from all the horrible murders that we've done of the middle, you know, in the middle East for the last 20 years, Gitmo's never talked about anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, we still have an illegal gulag that rectally force feeds Muslim inmates who are never going to be released for any, like they're never going to have like a real trial. That's crazy. Oh, Oh, guess what? We also have, we now have a gulag in, I, I think it mm-hmm. might be in Iraq or Syria. I'm not exactly Sure. That's controlled by U.S. military proxies from the YPG that is housing over 2,000 ISIS prisoners who are, like, starving to death. Like, we just have this, like, gulag for ISIS prisoners of war that's Why just do you like, care
0: about fascists, Robbie? Yeah, I'm pro—I forgot, I'm pro-ISIS. Too bad.
1: Yeah, every, all the shit's just designed to just make it seem like— it's just China's is is the one mistreating Muslims and we need to talk all about this it is sort of a pathetic way for us to overcompensate for how awful we are and I mean that's what it feels like to me it's not I'm not saying this for what aboutism I'm saying this because it's like we have a lot of blood on our hands and we're a karmic mess I mean we are fucking Jeffrey Dahmer on steroids times a million. I mean, it's I mean, it's, it's really it, hard to, uh, to take, to, to pull that back. What do you do? Well, you could just have complete amnesia and then just start pretending that another country's really evil and act like you actually care about it.
0: And the problem with the weaker situation is there's such a fog of war around the situation that it's so unclear what the reality really is. And, when you say Jeffrey Dahmer, I mean, we, we really are like the U S empire is such a mass murdering entity that yeah. A million dead Iraqis, Robbie, what happened to that? And that's just Iraq, you know, look at Libya, uh, look at Syria, which we'll talk about. I mean, this just came out. Um, Alan McLeald, who I actually think that we should have on the podcast sometime. I, I do really appreciate his work on mint press news. Uh, he reported new statistics coming out of um, Code Pink that talks about how many bombs the U.S. has dropped just since 2001. I mean, it's just this absurd number that like you can't even wrap your mind around, you know? Like almost half a million bombs and missiles um, in the Middle East and North Africa, 326,000. Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Yemen, of course, have felt the brunt of... The violence, but Lebanon, Libya, Pakistan, Palestine, and Somalia have also been targeted. That's 46 bombs dropped per day over the last 20 years, and that's an under a gross underestimate because the Trump administration stopped actually publishing data completely for like a year or so, maybe two years. Um, and also not counted are bombs or missiles used in helicopters. Helicopter strikes, AC-130 gunship attacks, strafing runs from U.S. bombers or any counterinsurgency or counterterrorism operations in other parts of the world. So when you just like look at that number and and just the overwhelming amount of people who have died and been maimed and refugees packing up your entire life to move across the country, the slave trade in Libya. All of these boats continuing to capsize in the Mediterranean. Every couple weeks, I'll see another story that's just a blip on the radar about like, oh, 30 people have died in the Mediterranean trying to flee Libya from our fucking policies there. So, yes, ill treatment of Muslims, of course, is horrible. I don't know what's going on. You know, all I know is that my government is a mass murdering entity that is responsible for subjugating and oppressing tens of millions of people around the world and has the blood of millions of people on its hands. And it has not been held accountable for any of it. And people are suffering and dying every day from our policy. And we have Joe fucking Biden doing the same thing with a disturbing continuity from the Trump administration.
1: Absolutely disturbing. And what's interesting, too, is that there. are even going against the WHO in terms of their investigation into the origins of the virus, which is kind of a continuity with the Trump administration as well because it's not like, it, it's just, it's eerie to me um, that they're doing that. And I think that the combination, Abby, of the fact that everyone just automatically assumes this came, that COVID-19 came from China and the fact that now they're resurrecting the Uyghur thing it, it, the combination of the two is, is sort of almost like it's already gotten into the wider left's head already, you know, even libertarians' heads, you know, people who would normally, their instinct naturally would be to not go after a foreign country, but I think it's just already dug too deep. I mean, you see, there's there's only a few libertarians besides Dave Ducamp, who's been on this for a long time, actually mm-hmm. in the right way, he's been covering this pretty aggressively, um, in the in the way that we have, there's only like a few others. The whole scene is just either not talking about it or they're actually playing into the furor against China, and it's just like,
0: what the fuck? Yeah, it's like a knee jerk response to just be like, well, China must be bad in some regard, even though you're you know culturally, politically ignorant of of really what China is and what it does, and. I will be the first to say that I am too ignorant about what China's doing to comment on it. What I do know is like I am an American citizen and my government is perpetrating horrific atrocities around the world. And I can leverage all of my power and energy and influence, my small amount of influence, to try to help stop that. You know, that's what I want to do. I can't do shit about what China's doing. I, I really can't. Wait, you mean,
1: Abby, if you... Uh, When your child grows up, if your child grew up in this era, you would not be telling them to go on TikTok and at NBA games to hold up a sign and saying (laughs) to protect the Uyghurs while doing like a hair tutorial on TikTok. I mean... Can you imagine how anybody fell for that shit? Like, clearly, a bunch of te- random teenage kids were not deciding to talk about the Uyghurs on TikTok. What the fuck was that fucking? Yeah, shit? Yeah, like high
0: school cheerleaders. That shit was
1: so fake. Like, who the fuck put that shit together? Like, I want to know the. My name is Bala Abed. Shit. The little kid <laughs> holding up the sign at the NBA game, like.
0: What neocon, like, did Epoch Times hire, like, a crisis actor? (laughs) Crisis actors for hire. Children (laughs) crisis actors for hire against the Uyghurs. There's a whole industry.
1: (laughs) That's what, that's the, Alex Jones is right. He's just about the wrong
0: things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh my God, I completely, can we, maybe we can cut this in to the Barry Weiss thing, Robbie, but dude, I completely forgot to bring this up. Barry Weiss is now co-founder of an organization called FAIR fairforall.org. It's called the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. It's like pretending that the opposite is true, right? That like really they're anti- they're the anti-racists because mm. we're the real racists, right? For saying like Israel's an apartheid state and, you know, all of this stuff. And then on their homepage, you should look at this. It's just unbelievable. There's a splash screen of Frederick Douglass and MLK, you know, talking uh-huh. about like, equality for all and dude that is so bill crystal speech. style Isn't oh, that i love insane? It. oh yeah, man incredible. that is so
1: great i want to know who else is part of that i feel like in a, a year they're going to be talking about how white genocide is a problem
0: yeah but with mlk's face like <laughs>
1: <laughs> white, yeah so that's it's just like was,
0: super tricky you yeah. know
1: Jesus Christ, I was going to say, I was going to say headline MLK was not a white genocide denier. Why are you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the way that they're able to cloak all of this crazy stuff into like progressivism is super interesting, you know, Oh, it's so very, interesting. very, very interesting. That's the
1: new way, man. I mean, look at what Tulsi was able to do everyone thought she was you know the most anti-war candidate she's just spouting off like neocon rhetoric like half the time she talks
0: this is like weirder than that though to me oh it is well i mean it is but
1: it's part of the same i feel like that's like the direction everything feels like it's going in that's why i'm like so fixated on all this shit like tucker Mm -hmm. and this stuff like Mm -hmm. because this feels like it really is changing the framing of the debate at large in our world like it's like just really like taking up a lot of energy
0: Um, Well, let's wrap it up by uh, talking about what Biden did uh, a couple weeks ago, which is strike Syria. I mean, he was barely in office a month and he had already authorized his first military strike uh, in flagrant violation of not only U.S. law because there was no congressional approval, but also like uh, international law, of course, because you're violating Syria's sovereignty. It has to be mentioned also that the U.S. is already occupying large swaths of Syrian soil to harness the oil, right? Oil operations and um, oil fields there. In one fell swoop, Biden attacked three countries at once, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. So not only did he bomb Syria, you know, but it wasn't bombing Syrian forces or the Assad government like Trump did. Trump was the first person to actually target Syrian forces. No, Biden attacked, quote-unquote, Iran-backed militias. Robbie, Iran-backed militias. Where have we heard that before?
1: I mean, the first time, I mean, I don't know what you're referring to, but the first time I heard it was probably in articles written by Josh Rogan and Eli Lake um, when they were trying to go after the Obama administration for apparently being in bed with Iran for somehow collaborating with these quote-unquote Iranian-backed militias militias. In Iraq, uh, against ISIS. Now, we're, what were you referring to?
0: I mean, through the Iraq War, they were always trying to delegitimize the Iraqi resistance by calling them Iran-backed, no matter who they were.
1: That's true. Yeah, that is true. Um, but the the phrasing of us fighting Iranian-backed militias, like on the ground in Iraq. Um, like, in this second wave, you know, mm-hmm. like, in this in this new sort of war against ISIS or whatever,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I feel like Obama's administration didn't refer... Like, there was no official wording from Obama's administration about them fighting those people or that they didn't claim any of the people that they were mm-hmm. fighting were Iranian-backed. Now, this seems to be an actual rhetorical shift from the Obama era in the sense that there is official... Language now coming out of the Biden administration saying uh, that this was Iranian-backed. Here's the official um, message. It says, at President Biden's direction, U.S. military forces earlier this evening conducted airstrikes against infrastructure utilized by Iranian-backed militant groups in eastern Syria. So that's, I mean, that, to me that's a really bad sign because that's sort of picking up where the Trump administration pivoted things rhetorically they made this about some kind of proxy war against Iran you know in this war against ISIS in Syria um, or, or Iraq so I don't know it just to me it's really worrisome
0: of course this is an eerie redux of what Trump did that led us to the precipice of war with Iran because all of this happened after missiles targeted a base in Iraq from Iraqi militants that actually killed a private contractor. This is the exact same thing that happened almost one year ago um, that, you know, Trump retaliated with bombing, I don't know, like a dozen sites in Syria and Iraq as a retali as retaliation for the private contractor death, which by the way, why the fuck are there? Pro- why are we still in Iraq? Okay. That aside, then those people stormed the embassy And it was such a PR disaster that Trump then decided to commit an egregious war crime by blowing up a top general in the Iranian army as he was entering Baghdad for peace negotiations. So it's super creepy. If you look at what Biden said about General Soleimani's assassination a year ago, he totally agreed with like everything that Trump did. It was just bad strategic timing, Tulsi style. Oh, no, strategically, this was bad because we didn't have any... um, game plan about what to do after Soleimani died. It's like, wait a minute, really? Like, so that wasn't bad? <laughs> like, like this wasn't a bad maneuver that Trump actually just blew up a general in the Iranian army? Like, Biden pretty much agreed with that, right? He just felt like um, Trump should have had something planned for whatever was next. And that was a really bad sign because all of the Democrats, alongside the corporate-owned media dutifully repeated the claim Iran-backed militia. Even Democracy Fucking Now just published a headline, Iran-backed militia. There is no evidence that these militias, or even militants, I mean, this is basically imperialist code for Iraqis that oppose the ongoing U.S. occupation of their country. Even the New York Times, the most dutiful stenographer, um, you know, mouthpiece of the Pentagon, even admitted below a headline saying Iran-backed militia they even said that there is no evidence that links this group to Iran.
1: Wow. Little is known about the
0: group. They said, quote, little is known about the group, including whether it is backed by Iran, end quote.
1: That's all so right. interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. That's it's so, unbelievable.
1: That's so weird because right after that happened, was that, that was after, or sorry, that was before that video came out of all those missiles apparently hitting that u.s military base in iraq right did you see that
0: i i didn't see the video of. i don't don't know know if it it happened
1: before or after that but it it was just the timing of that was really weird almost like they like let this base get hit by all these missiles and then they said they were from like an iranian missile battery and like yeah it just it, it just was very odd it's like why would iran be egging on some kind of attack on the u.s military in iraq like that like right after biden gets in you know like why would no. they do that and then everybody's like the narrative i guess that like oh they're testing biden to see like how strong or oh, weak please. he's gonna be it's Like, what the fuck dude oh this is please, just really sucks
0: please the United States bears any and all responsibility for any attack on its bases, which is completely an inevitability because when you are occupying a country and when you have been bombing it for three decades straight and you've essentially committed genocide, not only the million dead, but the 500,000 children, the sanctions in the nineties, the there's so many war crimes upon war crimes upon war crimes. And then you're still occupying this fucking country and you take away the agency of Iraqis who are angry and shooting missiles at bases and calling everything Iranian backed and that they're all being puppeted by Iran? It's insane. And then you risk an increase of, of basically war. You're escalating war tensions with three countries simultaneously within your first month in office. I mean, it's just it's beyond the pale, Robbie. Because, well it is, and I think it's it's
1: mm-hmm. almost Iran from Iran's side, they're probably just like, Why is the US, you know, why would they do this? Like we were hoping that we can have sort of like a new right. like a reset or something, and I think from the U.S.'s side, I legitimately believe the reason they're doing it is so they can just create us an excuse for the next couple of years to not have a detente with Iran, mm-hmm.
2: to just make it mm-hmm. seem
1: like well Iran's like attacking our tr- our troops, so like why, yep. you, like why would you want to make a deal with them? They're the aggressors. It's it just sets the perfect stage for that. So
0: you're totally right, and Biden in perfect doublespeak said the entire strike was to quote de-escalate tensions (laughs) de-escalate tensions i mean just imagine imagine having the audacity to say that meanwhile iran is just like wait a minute are we are you gonna lift the sanctions ever (laughs) like are we ever going to engage in any sort of diplomacy what was the point of biden coming in if he's just going to use trump's exact policy as leverage to make iran completely capitulate and bow down Um, To the U.S. It it doesn't make any sense at all um, from any point of view other than what you just said, which is just to have a never ending excuse to just continue to not engage with Iran um, and to build up this this war path with them. So it's just really disgusting. And then, you know, there was a few dissenters in Congress saying like, you know, oddly enough, Tim Kaine tried to propose some sort of legislation or something to prevent Biden from acting unilaterally without congressional approval to bomb another country. Um, But the vast majority of people, you know, as we know, there's a bipartisan chorus that just joins in to defend any sort of military action from whoever's in office overseeing the empire uh, and basically say it was just all done in self-defense, Robbie. The audacity and imperial hubris to actually claim that a preemptive strike on a sovereign nation that risks war with three different countries is an act of self-defense after you're illegally occupying another country for three decades. Like, it's... All this shit I mean, just, just becomes like, so normalized. I mean, too the,
1: the war on terror is just infinite, and mm-hmm. it just completely baked into our existence. We don't... Nobody thinks of it as, well, we're not... We haven't actually, like, won the war it's one thing to like occupy a country and then eventually like win over the government and then like leave but it's not like it's not the same as like you know in the same way we're occupying Japan or Germany where we give their government you know somewhat relative perception of autonomy this is different where we're actually occupying it in like an active war zone still and we've been doing it for like a really long time, like almost twenty years, I mean it's just like it's it is very yeah. disturbing. I just don't think people really think about it that way. They just think, well, yeah, we're being attacked. It's like no, that we're attacking them. like we shouldn't be there,
0: yeah, and I don't want to get into the whole timeline about you know what the u s has done to completely destroy Syria already, but we know how much worse it could have been. we know that John Kerry and Hillary Clinton were in Obama's ear, and that Obama decided to not do the no-fly zone. So Syria could be Libya, except worse at this moment in time. And you even had John Kerry arrogantly doing interviews like years after this happened, basically saying, yeah, it was a huge mistake. The world never like looked at us the same because we didn't follow through on our threats. Like, can you imagine that's the reason that you regret not bombing Syria? Because the world like wouldn't take our threats seriously. Well, it's, and everyone needs to completely just like believe that we're gonna bomb the shit out of them and kill you and annihilate you if you don't follow and exactly as we dictate you to do. And what's
1: so funny is because if you actually look back on see what Obama did, I mean that's one thing. It's just it's odd to think that that's the one thing that all almost all, I mean pretty much everybody from the Obama administration who's who's in the same type of level as John Kerry has said similar things, alluding that Obama. Fucked up. That's basically what they're saying. I mean, yeah, of and it's it's interesting that they're saying that. And all Obama did was he decided at the last minute to give it up to a congressional vote. Right, right,
0: right, right. Which right. is just
1: like that's so. Cause it's like <laughs> that's what that's like what should have all should
0: always be done when you to war, dude. <laughs> like that's we're so Isn't fucked, that amazing. Dude. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And then, and then Kerry, I just heard this interview today because it was on Brian Becker's show. Everyone should check out the socialist program. It's a great uh, radio show multiple times a week, but John Kerry was saying like, yeah, we made a huge mistake. He's like, cause Assad is still in the driver's seat. And it's like, you mean the sovereign country, a president of a sovereign country who like, yeah, what do you mean he's in the driver's seat? And that's, that's something that was a huge mistake by the U S like, so the U S should just dictate who is president of every country and it was just said so casually and disgustingly and it's like the reporter didn't even challenge him it's just like my god you're a disgusting pig um, and right now like not only is the u.s occupying syria but syria is also suffering from like economic warfare all of these sanctions u.s envoy to syria james jeffrey who Previously, had bragged about the shell game that he played with Trump, which I don't believe that. I, if I know how many troops were in Syria, Trump knew. You know, like that whole like talking point that came out. That was just like Trump doesn't even know how many troops are here. It's way more than two hundred. Oh yeah, and then, what's so his face? So Trump um, was let off the
1: hook. That one representative came out in congr- yeah. congressman and congressman said that was all bullshit. Remember,
0: um, Justin Amash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love <Yeah>. him. <laughs> My favorite. I found out that he's also like Palestinian, which maybe explains his good politics. But anyway, James Jeffrey, the U.S. envoy to Syria, bragged that U.S. sanctions have caused Syria's currency to collapse, causing hyperinflation that makes it just increasingly difficult for ordinary Syrians to buy food or other essentials. Hmm, sound familiar? So this is just, you know, in the time of COVID to actually be deploying like debilitating sanctions that are preventing people from getting humanitarian assistance medicine and food is uh pretty evil and sadistic so that's what we're doing in syria beyond just you know the bombing that you just heard about there's so much more to it and it's not even about like regime change in syria it's about more like threatening iran you know but i mean if you look at regime change in syria yeah that's a whole other issue like you know Syria is part of this block alongside Iran, going back to the Wesley Clark seven countries in five years um this is the last remaining the vestiges of independent nations, not necessarily that they're anti-imperialist or whatever, but they're just independent. They have some sort of semblance of independence um, you know in in the era that we live in and they That's the threat that they pose. And the U.S. is so arrogant that they just wanted to take all of them down. And the reason they couldn't do all of them is because it got bogged down in Iraq. And, you know, they realized uh, how much they needed the coalition, um, a stronger coalition than they had in Iraq. And so... Um, that's, that's the importance of NATO reasserting these junior collaborators, the NATO alliance, and that's, you know going back to like why Trump was so dangerous um, in their eyes, because he was isolating the U.S. from partners that could help really carry out and bring to fruition the last bits of uh, U.S. imperialism to knock down these, these remaining states that are uh, still a thorn in its side.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think it's one way to describe it is that they're just not, these countries are not under the U.S. sphere of influence. Right. Russia is obviously much closer to Syria than we are. Yeah, it's just weird that all this comes down to is the U.S.'s uh, global imperial hegemonic agenda. Yes. Why are we always discussing countries doing bad things that are somehow fall outside the U.S. sphere of influence that the U.S. has, like, long needed to, like, get out of the way. It's just so funny that that's always how it turns out.
0: Yeah, if you look at, like, (laughs) Africa, holy shit, dude, it is so goddamn obvious. I mean, first of all, like, the generations and centuries of just racism against black people, like, for some reason, people just never talk about what's going on in Africa or what the U.S. is doing there. But, like, that's a whole other can of worms that once you like really look at what what governments the U.S. is supporting and what rebel groups are we training and stuff it's like unreal I mean it just blows up the entire hypocritical notion of like human rights and democracy around the world it's just like it's it's laughable it is completely laughable I mean Uganda is like a perfect example there was just like dozens of unarmed protesters that were massacred trying to protest a fraudulent election and the U.S. just you know has staunch support for that government. And we didn't even hear a peep about it in the corporate media. And it's like, I mean, imagine that happening in Syria or no. Venezuela or whatever, you know? We have to wonder um, too
1: with all these news networks and have all these international resources where they have the branches in all these different countries and different translators mm-hmm. and different camera people they can bring out. Like Vice seemingly has resources mm-hmm. in every country. Why aren't they covering something like this? Well, it's because all the international stuff you've seen them covering before was probably just like Driven by like think tanks or fucking foundations and all these people who are like part of the ruling class or like the even some people from like intelligence and US government. So it's like, <laughs> I mean, when you see Pierre Omidiar, the Omidyar group, for example, fighting, they're doing like a conference on how to fight against big tech. It's like he's a fucking PayPal oligarch. <laughs> what are you talking about?
0: It's insane, dude. It's just, I mean, yeah, yeah. Greenwald's association with Intercept has really like. Uh, the gloves were completely off and no one ever covered what Omidyar's role is and Tip was for, like, and, Mark Ames and stuff. It's just unbelievable. Jean. Yeah, it's... Un- but Robbie, you know, it could have been so much worse what Biden did, but we're so lucky. We're so lucky to have Biden who really cares about civilians. He cares about women and children. And he's just like a good guy because he called off a second strike, Robbie, because he saw women and children were there. And... I completely believe this uncritically um, because an anonymous Biden official leaked it to the press. And, you know, I just take that at face value. And I'm just so happy that we have Biden because people could have died, Robbie, that that weren't terrorists. And I'm just really happy Biden saved children's lives.
1: That's so fucking ridiculously dumb. That's so dumb. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I saw some crazy, like, anarcho antifa style like takes about it saying that like if you sympathize with this like fascist militia being killed you are like a fascist and it was like what the fuck is happening this is wait so uh,
0: did they get direct proof were they like on the ground and they actually like saw who died abby yeah
1: we got we had troops on the ground we have we got ypg (laughs) antifa on the ground sending intelligence back it's all good
0: what trash
1: dude Every single target murdered in Syria That's on the other side of a bullet From any of those groups The YPG, any of those dudes Is ISIS You and are ISIS, the fascist ISIS is our sub-hu- subhuman fash You are pro-ISIS fash If you even question that hmm. remotely
0: Kind of going back to Rush Limbaugh You are a Saddam apologist If you think we shouldn't be mm-hmm. carpet bombing The Middle East Very interesting Robbie. It's interesting how it all comes full circle, but it's now masked in like millennial, like hipster rhetoric, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Or that people like white people who are in the anti-imperialist scene, like pretend to even know what Wahhabism is. And they like bring it up as if they're making some distinction between like good and evil versions of like Muslims.
0: When there's tens of millions of people who to the Wahhabist ideology around the world and you're literally playing into the notion that all of those people are like genocidal terrorists who that's want some, that's That's
1: neocon empire baby bullshit. Any way you slice it.
0: And Robbie, there's, there's a huge propaganda blitz randomly, like, building up around this strike. Um, like, for example, and let's just close it out here, because it's just funny. 60 Minutes, uh, you know, the whole thing about the Caesar sanctions and all the stuff about Syria. And and what do you know? Who was in the 60 Minutes special talking about how Assad needs to go down? Mwaz Mustafa, A CIA plant who was friends with my old producer on Breaking the Set, who actually I had a huge falling out with because he hijacked my show the second that I left on vacation and did like a giant CIA propaganda push about doing a no-fly zone in Syria, had Moaz on, showed the pictures of the kids from the alleged chemical attack. It was nuts, Robbie. It was completely nuts. This guy was billed as a, quote, Syrian activist. Not talk to, not talking about his role in, you know, intelligence agencies, not talking about his good old boy's trip with John McCain, where he's actually, like, pictured with, like, members of Al-Nusra or whatever in that famous photo, that infamous photo of him and John McCain. It was just really, really interesting because I don't think people really realize how 60 Minutes just also peddles, like, just blatant um, imperialist propaganda, too. Maybe you did know that. But, like, these shows are billed as, like, independent investigative series, you know, and um, the fact that they just uncritically showed this dude who I literally know from being in D.C. is an intelligence agent um, as just like a quote unquote Syrian activist. It was just hilarious. So there's a lot of propaganda out there. It's constantly building and you just have to really cut through it and ask questions. Because if I didn't know Moaz, I mean, I wouldn't think twice about it, you know, I mean, I would still not believe the segment because it's like obviously pro war segment trying to make you want to you know take down Assad but it was just like the fact that I know this guy I was just like oh my god like this is crazy
1: and you gotta like already just assume if you're if you've been a listener to me of media roots radio for like several years you just have to automatically assume that anyone you see on 60 minutes talking about Syria from that perspective is some kind of like think tank plant or intelligence plant and when I say plant I mean like these networks are just directly plugged into these apparatuses they don't they don't actually go on a search for, like, honest voices. They just have, like, a list of people from all these think tanks. They, they just, like, pick from a little thing. It's like, that's how this shit works. So um, it's just, yeah, it shouldn't... Uh, I mean, 20, 2020, that's, like, kind of a knockoff of 60 Minutes. They came and interviewed me uh, at my house um, about the beheading hoax in 2004. They came and did a little segment and recorded... And they spent like hours and hours setting up all their equipment, their lights. There was a team of like eight people setting all this stuff up. And as soon as the reporter sat down and as soon as the camera started rolling, his, his demeanor went from sort of jovial, casual to just like scolding, punitive, asking us why we offended Nick Berg's family. There wasn't any curiosity about how the media was dumb enough to fall for this, why Associated mm-hmm. Press fell for this. It's like, dude, you just came all the way out here for like a, 10-minute recording of you just like scolding us just gotta, get that,
0: you know yeah, just, just gotta like, get that sound bite and it's just it's like
1: it really did seem like they he, the guy was almost just like told by the, like the fbi to like just come and like <laughs> make us like like treat us like shit no it seriously was it felt like that it was just so weird the attitude was just so dismissive and weird and, and and all these people are just even if they're not directly working with government officials they're fucking brainwashed by them they're access journalists they just fucking well, who do you think all their sources are? They're insiders right. that are like feeding them information. Why? A lot of the time, it's probably that's because the government wants to get that narrative out. I mean, geez. Yeah.
0: No, I and On I didn't toes, even really, geez. I didn't even really realize it worked <laughs> that way until I was at RT, living in DC, and it is exactly the way that you describe. It is literally like um, a rolodex of just different think tanks that people just pluck, and you know have a revolving door on these networks. And that's, like, when it's not just overtly, like, intelligence assets, you know, or, like, ex-CIA or whatever. Those people are just clearly revolving guests and all that as well. But, like, the more obscure figures that are cited and uh, as the authority figures and all these articles are always working for these think tanks that are funded by oil companies and defense contractors and pharmaceutical industries. So, yeah, that that's the way the media works, kids, and we got to really... Keep on your toes, dudes. But Abby, it's all about radio. It's all about um,
1: we have to prevent employed journalists who make six figures a year at the New York Times like Andrew Sullivan and people like Barry Weiss from getting canceled. That is actually the main problem with the corporate media sphere right now is the corporate wokeness.
0: That's fascism.
1: Yeah, it's not any of the things you just talked about, that there's a revolving door of just like propaganda being poured in from like government and corp- and other corporations into the media sphere. It's the cancel culture that they're involved it's
0: peop- in. It's people who are st- – you know what it really is? is canceling people who are anti-Palestinian because that really is, is the real cancel culture. Is someone like Barry Weiss who has made a career on squashing Palestinians – and her and her quitting voluntarily from a giant publication, one of the most most read publications in the country, that's cancel culture. So everyone join her think tank, um her new think tank and and get in that Clubhouse chat and get an ear to the real story of fascism happening in this country.
1: And Abby, I mean, you think it's the libs and the Dems who are behind cancel culture? I mean, the people really behind the curtain are it's the CCP. So ultimately, I mean, yeah, it's just one big Chinese plot against the United States.
0: To and let me us. leave you with this, Robbie. Let me leave you with this. Liberal blue checks, Amy Siskind on Twitter after Biden bombed Syria. This is what she wrote: "So different having military action under Biden." No middle school level threats on Twitter. Trust Biden and his team's competence. And then oh. someone responding to her wrote, such a quiet attack. No drama, no TV coverage of bombs, no comments on how presidential Biden is. What a difference.
1: Oh my God, dude. Yikes.
0: That's, that's, our, that's our world, baby. Go back to brunch, everyone. Yikes. So. I mean,
1: I just, I don't understand how people feel safe with Biden in office. I mean, he really does seem like he's just completely not there. I and mean, at least Trump, you know, I, I guess Biden thought he had, or Bannon thought he had dementia, but at least he seemed like he was in control of his faculties most of the time in terms of talking and things like that. This is just absurd.
0: He's steering that ghost ship right off the cliff.
1: <laughs> he really is. It's like a ghost gonna ship going to like, it. it's going to like disappear like, uh, at like, at like midnight and the moonlight, like a cloud of vapor, <laughs> like, like in Pirates of the Caribbean. Like in the fog. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, like the fog. That's a much better, Jesus Christ. I um, I drop Pirates of the Caribbean.
0: <laughs> I got one up on you. John carpenter you. Um, well, uh, let's wrap it up. We've been going for a doozy amount of time, Robbie. This has been a quite a bit of a doozy episode i hope everyone enjoyed it this is what happens when me and my brother don't talk for two weeks and get on the phone we just can't stop but um a lot to talk about we have two incredible guests coming on this month robbie has a six-part series of the masonic history of the united states everyone check out we have an exclusive media roots podcast every single month for patrons five dollars and up this month we're doing something special if you join um Any of our Patreon tiers, you can get access to our Discord channel, and we are going to do questions and answers and topics that you submit for our exclusive Patreon episode this month. So check that out. Get involved. Um, Thank you so much to our Patreon community. You and only you are what makes this podcast uh, continue at the rate it is, and the amount of work that we put into it is only because of your support. We thank you so much, and we appreciate you, and we hope you enjoyed this doozy of a podcast.
1: Thanks, everybody, for listening. Take care out there.